It's a beautiful Sunday over here with Chase and Josh of Factor Fantasy. That's Chase, I'm Josh, and we are here to give you part four of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince today. Hope you're locked and loaded and have your seatbelts buckled up because we've got a long ride ahead. We've got, uh, very similar to last week, we've got six chapters that we will run through today, chapter 19 through chapter 24, and so much happens in this piece, you're going to get a lot of what we used to call uh, story time with Chase and Josh a couple episodes ago, so... Um, but I do want to say I'm very thankful for everything that you guys have done as a fan base, as an audience base. Uh, our, our reviews are up, our, our interaction with the people who listen are up on all sorts of social media platforms, so that's fantastic. I'm glad you guys have stuck with us. It's been, uh, it's been a long road and it's still, we still got some time to go. We're still, as Chase likes to tell it in quarters, we're still kind of towards the middle part of the third quarter before we finally turn the page in the next two weeks of getting into the fourth quarter, which will be Deathly Hallows, and that's going to be fun on its own. But as far as today goes, we're jumping in with uh, part four, which will again be chapter 19 through chapter 24. I'll turn it over to Chase, let him say his little piece, and then we're going to jump right on into it, boys and girls, because it's about to get into some murky waters. (laughs) Yeah, man. Ride or die, baby. One shot. Everything rides on two night even if i die three strikes i'ma go for it this moment we own it oh i'm stoked man this is uh got some badass detail today um just as far as i i gotta be honest like even reading through the chapters that we were supposed to read through um it's one of those where you i didn't want to put it down like i didn't want to stop reading it because it it gets that intense and that's saying a lot um that comparing it to all the other harry potter uh chapters in all the books that really shows like where this episode today is really on a scale like just on the level of detail um and how everything is coming together and how it's literally edge of your seat, edge of your seat moment one after another. Um, and and we're, we're bringing all that to you today. Um, so yeah, with that being said, I say we just dive right on into it, man. And I'll let uh, our own Jay Nelly, king of the castle, uh, go ahead and kick us off here today, man. That sounds like a great plan. So uh, before we jump into it, I always like to give a quick little recap of stuff we talked about last week to catch you up to speed if you haven't gotten to that episode yet. So, uh, last week we got a lot of really important things. We gleamed a lot of information about Tom Riddle as a child when Dumbledore went there at the orphanage and uh, kind of how he interacted and how we even saw some glimpses of how he would turn out in the future uh, just from there. Uh, Ron finally gets his very first girlfriend ever in Lavender Brown. It's been going nice, and we're going to start seeing how that kind of starts shifting here just a little bit. Uh, Talking about Ron as well, he had quite the uh, birthday surprise. Uh, He was poisoned uh, by that mead that they drank in Professor Slughorns. We still don't know if he's alive or if he's going to be kicking the bucket, but we're going to find out in these chapters here today. Other things that I thought were really important too, Slughorn's memory. we got to figure out how we're going to get the memory out of Slughorn about what Horcruxes are, what they do, and I guess there's another part of it too. I don't want to say it because it kind of gives it away, but uh, there's another aspect of the memory that they need in terms of quantity, <laughs> and then I'll just leave it at that. Uh, from there, though, that's uh, that's pretty much where we kind of tackled those really big 
moments. Sliding into today, we're going to be starting on chapter 19, which is called uh, Elf Tales. Uh, Harry still is not giving up his whole Malfoy's a Death Eater theory. He's been trying to figure out and catch him at it. Uh, it's been unsuccessful so far. Another big moment from last week, too, the uh, Quidditch match between Gryffindor and Slytherin kind of ties in here because Malfoy was very curiously missing from the Slytherin team when they played them. And also Ron played out of his mind well because he thought he had taken some Felix Felicis potion from Harry. He thought he dumped it into his pumpkin juice, but it was actually a trick. The cork is sealed. He did not take it. Ron actually performed that all on his own when he wasn't in his own head. So congratulations, Ron. Gryffindor beat them in Slytherin. I beat Slytherin in Quidditch, and they got the lead right now in the House Cup, and we're going to kind of see where that goes from here because then we got our old boy, uh, Hermione's boyfriend, uh, Cormac McLaggen, make some uh, mistakes today. Uh, so you're going to jump into that a little bit. But like, without further ado, Chase and I will go ahead and give the old Malice and the Chalice, and I'll go ahead and kick us off here on Chapter 19, and we'll just take this thing home today, baby. Let's do it. Malice and the Chalice. Cheers, man. brother. Good stuff. Spellbound, baby. Love it. All right. Good stuff. Here we go. Chapter 19, Elf Tales. I, I The first thing I notated on page 399, and I like this, right? This I think this is really cool and really smart for these guys to do this, but Fred and George, they were thinking about expanding their joke shop and buying Zonkos. You guys remember in Hogsmeade, Zonkos is the big joke shop that has been there since the very beginning, and Fred and George used to love going into Zonkos and buying stuff. Remember Fred, George, and Lee Jordan even showed up to the the meeting with Zonko's uh, merchandise when they were talking about the Order of the Phoenix and talking about starting Dumbledore's army. They showed up with a bunch of Zonko's merchandise. They used to go there all the time and buy their products. Well, now they're going to buy the whole damn store. <laughs> like, they were thinking about buying the whole damn store, which is pretty cool. So thought that was awesome. They ended up not doing it. They're not pursuing it at this time because the, the kids weren't allowed in Hogsmeade due to what happened to Katie Bell. And on top of that, Ron just got poisoned, so... Um, I guess I should set the scene as well because we're in the hospital wing right now, but I just thought that was the biggest thing I wanted to point out that I liked from that page. Now, going into page 400, I'm going to have about like six pages to tackle through here. So I'm going to uh, kind of read through here. It kind of gives us a recap of what happened, Harry explaining to other people as well, and then kind of having some theories bounced around. So I'll go ahead and start. It says, uh, Harry retold the story he had rec already recounted it felt like a hundred times to Dumbledore to McGonagall, to Madame Pomfrey, to Hermione, and to Ginny. Dot, dot, dot. And I got the bezoar down his throat, and his breathing eased up a bit. Slughorn ran for help. McGonagall and Madame Pomfrey turned up, and they brought Ron up here. They reckon he'll be all right. Madame Pomfrey says he'll have to stay here a week or so, and keep taking the essence of Rue. So, hey, shocker, Ron's alive, guys. I know that you all are holding your breath and making sure from last <laughs> week that Ron was going to make it through, but... Looks like Ron is going to make it through after all, so that's good news. Um, Blimey, it was lucky that you thought of a bezoar, said George in a low voice. Lucky there was one in the room, said Harry, who kept turning cold at the thought of what would have happened had he had not been able to lay his hands on the little stone. Hermione gave an almost inaudible sniff. She had been exceptionally quiet all day. Having hurtled white face up to Harry outside the hospital wing and demanded to know what happened, she had taken almost no part in Harry and Ginny's obsessive discussion about how Ron had been poisoned, but merely stood beside them, clenched-jawed and frightened-looking, until at last they had been allowed to see him. Do Mom and Dad know? Fred asked Ginny. Yeah, they've already seen him. They arrived an hour ago. They're in Dumbledore's office now, but they'll be back soon. There was a pause while they all watched Ron mumble a little in his sleep. So the poison was in his drink, said Fred quietly. 
Yes, said Harry at once. He could not think of anything else and was glad for the opportunity to start discussing it again. Slughorn poured it out. Would he have been able to slip something into Ron's glass without you seeing? Probably, said Harry, but why would Slughorn want to poison Ron? No idea, said Fred, frowning. You don't think he could have mixed up the glasses by mistake, meaning to get you? Why would Slughorn want to poison Harry, asked Ginny. I don't know. There must be loads of people who'd like to poison Harry, mustn't there? The Chosen One and all that. So you think Slughorn's a Death Eater, said Ginny. Anything's possible, said Fred darkly. He could be underneath the Imperious Curse, said George. Or he could be innocent, said Ginny. The poison could have been in the bottle, in which case it was probably meant for Slughorn himself. Well, who would want to kill Slughorn? Dumbledore reckons Voldemort wanted Slughorn on his side, said Harry. Slughorn was in hiding for a year before he came to Hogwarts, and... He thought of the memory Dumbledore had not been able to extract from Slughorn. And maybe Voldemort wants him out of the way. Maybe he thinks he could be valuable to Dumbledore. But you said Slughorn had been planning to give that bottle to Dumbledore for Christmas, Ginny reminded him. So the Poisoner could have just as easily have been after Dumbledore. Then the Poisoner didn't know Slughorn very well, said Hermione, speaking for the first time in hours and sounding as though she had a bad head cold. Anyone who knew Slughorn would have known that there was a good chance he'd keep something that tasty for himself. Hermione croaked Ron unexpectedly from between them. They all fell silent, watching him anxiously. But after muttering incomprehensibly for a moment, he merely started snoring. The dormitory doors flew open, making them all jump. Hagrid came striding towards them, his hair rain-flecked, his bearskin coat flapping behind him, and a crossbow in his hand leaving a trail of muddy, dolphin-sized footprints all over the floor. "'Been in the forest all day,' he panted. "'Aragog's worse. I've been reading to him.' Didn't get up to dinner till just now, and then Professor Sprout told me about Ron. How is he? Not bad, said Harry. They say he'll be okay. No more than six visitors at a time, said Madame Pomfrey, hurrying out of her office. Hagrid makes six, George pointed out. Oh. Yes, said Madame Pomfrey, who seemed to have been counting Hagrid as several people, due to his vastness. To cover her confusion, she hurried off to clear up his muddy footprints with her wand. I don't believe this said Hagrid hoarsely, shaking his great shaggy head as he stared down at Ron. Just don't believe it. Look at him lying there. Who'd want to hurt him, eh? Well, that's just what we were discussing, said Harry. We don't know. Someone couldn't have a grudge against the Gryffindor Quidditch team, could they? said Hagrid anxiously. First Katie, now Ron. I can't see anyone trying to bump off a Quidditch team, said George. Wood might have done the Slytherins if he could have got away with it, said Fred fairly. Well, I don't think it's Quidditch, but I think there's a connection between the attacks, said Hermione quietly. How do you work that out? asked Fred. Well, for one thing, they both ought to have been fatal and weren't, although that was pure luck. And for another, neither the poison nor the necklace seems to have reached the person who was supposed to be killed. Of course, she added broodingly, that makes the person behind this even more dangerous in a way because they don't seem to care how many people they finish off before they actually reach their victim. And before anyone could respond to this ominous pronouncement, the dormitory doors opened again, and Mr. and Mrs. Weasley hurried up the ward. They had done no more than satisfy themselves that Ron would make a full recovery on their last visit to the ward, and now Mrs. Weasley seized hold of Harry, hugged him very tightly. Dumbledore told us how you saved him with the bezoar, she sobbed. Oh, Harry, what can we say? You saved Ginny, you saved Arthur, and now you saved Ron. Don't be... I didn't, muttered Harry awkwardly. Half our family does seem to owe you their lives, now I stop to think about it, said Mr. Weasley in a constricted voice. Well... All I can say is that it was a lucky day for the Weasleys when Ron decided to sit in your compartment on the Hogwarts Express, Harry. Harry could not think of any reply to this, and was almost glad when Madame Pomfrey reminded them that there was only supposed to be six visitors around Ron's bed. He and Hermione rose at once to leave, and Hagrid decided to go with them, leaving Ron with his family. 
It's terrible, growled Hagrid into his beard as the three of them walked back along the corridor to the marble staircase. All this new security and, and kids still getting hurt. Dumbledore's worried sick. He doesn't say much, but I can tell. Has he got any ideas, Hagrid? asked Hermione desperately. I expect he's got hundreds of ideas, brain like his, said Hagrid, but he doesn't know who sent that necklace nor put the poison in that wine, or they'd have been caught, wouldn't they? What worries me, said Hagrid, lowering his voice and glancing over his shoulder. Harry, for good measure, checked the ceiling for peeves. How long Hogwarts can stay open if kids are being attacked? Chamber of Secrets all over again, isn't it? There'll be panic, more parents taking their kids out of school, and next thing you know, the Board of Governors... Hagrid stopped talking as a ghost of a long-haired woman drifted serenely past and resumed in a hoarse whisper. The Board of Governors would be, be talking about shutting us up for good. Surely not, said Hermione, looking worried. Gotta see it from their point of view, said Hagrid heavily. I mean, it's always been a bit of a risk sending a kid to Hogwarts, hasn't it? You expect accidents, don't you, with hundreds of underage wizards all locked up together, but attempted murder, that's different. It's no wonder why Dumbledore is angry with S Hagrid stopped in his tracks, a familiar guilty expression what was visible of his face above his tangled black beard. What? said Harry quickly. Dumbledore's angry with Snape? I never said that, said Hagrid, though his look of panic could not have been a bigger giveaway. Look at the time. It's getting on after midnight. Uh, I need to... Hagrid? Why is Dumbledore angry with Snape? asked Harry loudly. Shh, said Hagrid, both looking nervous and angry. Don't shout stuff like that, Harry. Do you want me to lose my job? Mind, I don't suppose you'd care, would you? Not now that you've given up care of magic. Don't try and make me feel guilty. It won't work, said Harry forcefully. What's Snape done? I don't know, Harry. I shouldn't have heard it at all. I, uh, well, I was coming out of the forest the other evening, and I overheard him talking while arguing. Didn't like to draw attention to myself, so I just sort of sculpted and tried not to listen. But it was a, a well-heated discussion, and it wasn't easy to block out. Well, Harry urged him, and Hagrid shuffled his enormous feet uneasily. Well, I just heard Snape saying Dumbledore too much for granted, and maybe he, Snape, didn't want to do it anymore. Do what? I don't know, Harry. It sounded like Snape was feeling a bit overworked, that's all. Anyways, Dumbledore told him flat out he agreed to do it, and that's all there was to it. Pretty firm with him. Then he said something about Snape making investigations in his house in Slytherin. Well, there's nothing strange about that, said Hagrid hastily, as Harry and Hermione exchanged looks of full meaning. All the heads of houses were asked to look into the necklace business. Yeah, but Dumbledore's not having rows with the rest of them, is he? said Harry. Look, Hagrid twisted his crossbow uncomfortably in his hands. There's a loud splintering sound and snapped in two. I know what you're like about Snape, Harry, and I don't want you to go reading into this more than there is. Look out, said Hermione tersely. They turned just in time to see the shadow of Argus Filch looming over the wall behind them before the man himself turned hunch, cornered hunchback in his jowls a quiver. Oh-ho, he wheezed. Out of bed so late. This'll mean detention. No, it won't, Filch, said Hagrid shortly. They're with me, aren't they? And what difference does that make? asked Phil Filch obnoxiously. I'm a ruddy teacher, aren't I, you sneaking squib? said Hagrid, firing up at once. There was a nasty hissing noise as Filch swelled with fury. Mrs. Norris had arrived unseen and was twisting herself sinuously around Filch's skinny ankles. Get going, said Hagrid out of the corner of his mouth. Harry did not need telling twice, and he and Hermione both hurried off, and Hagrid and Filch's raised voices echoed behind them as they ran. They passed Peeves near to the turning into Gryffindor Tower, but he was streaking happily towards the source of the yelling, cackling and calling, When there's strife and when there's trouble, call on Peevesy, he'll make double! And that's where I'll go ahead and leave that part before I jump into a couple more bullet points, but 
Uh, page 408, just because Ron is laid up in the hospital wing, they are now down a keeper for Quidditch. And so Harry is actually forced to agree to let Cormac McLaggen on the Quidditch team with Ron there in the hospital wing. Then on page 409, just the second uh, paragraph, talking about Quidditch continually. Harry, however, had never been less interested in Quidditch. He was rapidly becoming obsessed with Draco Malfoy, still checking the Marauders map whenever he got the chance. He sometimes made detours to wherever Malfoy happened to be, but had not yet detected him doing anything out of the ordinary. And then there were still those inexplicable times when Malfoy simply vanished from the map. Now, going to page 410... Ron starts pretending to be asleep when Lavender, when Lavender comes to visit him. So he's not interested in her anymore, it seems, where he is very concerned if Hermione will be visiting him. He Remember, before they get to the Quidditch, he's like, is Hermione coming to pop in? <laughs> and then Harry's like, I don't think so. She's already there, already at the Quidditch match. But So just funny how that things change so quickly in high school, especially with relationships. Like Ron and Lavender, last week when we were talking, they couldn't get unglued from each other. Like They were like stuck together by the mouths, and now... Ron's kind of tired of it, and every time Lavender goes down to see him, he pretends to be asleep. And Lavender's been bugging Harry, like asking Harry all these questions, and Harry's like, dude, ask Ron. She's like, I can't. Every time I go down there, he's asleep. <laughs> so, actually, Harry gives it to Ron. He's like, dude, stop. you talk about calling it quits, dude. Tell her like to stop bugging me about it and just talk to her yourself, man. But, anyways... Uh, I'll go. I'll go ahead and on page four eleven and turn it over to Chase, where he'll kind of talk through the rest of the chapter, especially the Quidditch match and what happens there. So I'll turn it over to you, brother, at uh, page four eleven, and you can kind of take us through the rest of that chapter. Yeah, man. You know what I was thinking what? <laughs> was uh, as we talked about ending up last episode. <laughs> what did he say to Lavender? He was like. F off, basically. I'm trying to see Ramilda Vane. <laughs> yeah, get get out of my way. Vane. He's like, get out of get my out way. Get out of my way. Yeah, get out of my way. It's <laughs> great, man. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so taking away here on page 411. So I'll uh, start it off here as far as where it says. Uh, did you so, have anything? You so yeah, for 411, add? I left off where like they talked about Lavender and him telling him to stop pretending to be asleep. So. Uh, you're just going to go from where he goes, uh, no, she's already gone down to the pitch with Ginny. You'll go ahead with that next sentence right there. It's like the third to last like dialogue on the page 411 there. Do you see it? Awesome. Where it says, yep. like, oh, right said here. Ron. Okay, perfect. Oh, awesome. oh said Ron. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Um, oh, said Ron, looking rather glum. Right. Well, good luck. Hope you hammer, McLag. I mean, Smith. I'll try, said Harry, uh, shouldering his broom. See you after the match. He hurried down uh, through the deserted corridors. The whole school was outside, either already seated in the stadium or heading down toward it. He was looking out of the windows he passed, trying to gauge how much wind they were facing, when a noise ahead made him glance up and he saw Malfoy walking toward him, accompanied by two girls, both of whom looked sulky and resentful. Malfoy stopped short at the sight of Harry then gave a short, humorless laugh and continued walking. Where are you going? Harry demanded. Yeah, I'm really going to tell you because it's your business, Potter, <laughs> sneered Malfoy. You better hurry up. They'll be waiting for the chosen captain, <laughs> the boy who scored whatever they call you these days. One of the girls gave an unwillingly, unwilling giggle. Harry stared at her. She blushed. Malfoy pushed past Harry and she and her friend followed at trot turning the corner and vanishing from view. 
Harry stood rooted on the spot and watched them disappear. This was infuriating. Infuriating. He was already cutting into fine to get to the match one time, and yet there was Malfoy skulking off while the rest of the school was absent. Harry's best chance yet of discovering what Malfoy is up to. The silent seconds trickled past, and Harry remained where he was frozen, gazing at the space where Malfoy had vanished. Where have you been? demanded Jenny, as Harry sprinted into the changing rooms. The whole team was changed and ready. Cooten Peaks and the beaters were both hitting their clubs nervously against their legs. I met Malfoy, Harry told her quietly, as he pulled his scarlet robes over his head. So? So I wanted to know, how come he's up at the castle with a couple of girlfriends while everyone else is down here? Does it matter right now? Well, I'm not likely to find out, am I? Said Harry, seizing his firebolt and pushing his glasses straight. Come on, then. And without another word, he marched out onto the pitch to deafening cheers and boos. There was little wind. The clouds were patchy every now and then, and they were dazzling flashes of bright sunlight. Tricky conditions, Mick Laggan said bracingly to the team. Coot, Peaks, you'll want to fly out of the sun so they don't see you coming. I'm Captain McLaggen. Shut up giving them instructions, said Harry angrily. Just get up the goalpost. Once McLaggen had marched off, Harry turned to Coot and Peaks. Make sure you do fly out of the sun, he told them grudgingly. He shook hands with the Hufflepuff captain and then, on Madame Hooch's whistle, kicked off and rose into the air, higher than the rest of the team, streaking around the pitch in search of the snitch. If he could catch it good and early, there might be a chance he could get back up to the castle and seize the Marauder's map and find out what Malfoy was doing. And that's Smith of Hufflepuff with the quaffle, said a dreamy voice echoing over the crowds. He did the commentary last time, of course, and Ginny Weasley flew into him. I think probably on purpose it looked like it. Smith was being quite rude about Gryffindor. I expect he regrets that now he's playing them. Oh! Look, he lost the quaffle. Jenny took it out from him. I do like her. She's very nice. Harry stared down at the commentator's podium. Surely nobody in their right mind would have let Luna Lovegood commentate. But even from above, there was no mistaking that long, dirty blonde hair, nor the necklace of butterbeer corks. Beside Luna, Professor McGonagall was looking slightly uncomfortable, as though she was indeed having second thoughts about the appointment. But now that big Hufflepuff players got the quaffle from her, I can't remember his name. It's something like Bibble. No, Buggins. It's Cottawalder, said Professor McGonagall loudly from beside Luna. The crowd laughed. Harry stared around for the snitch and there was no sign of it. Moments later, Cottawalder scored. McLagan had been shouting criticism at Jenny for allowing the quaffle out of her possession, with the result that he had not noticed that the large red ball soaring past his right ear. McLaggen, will you pay attention to what you're supposed to be doing and leave everyone else alone? Belled Harrow, bellowed Harry, wheeling around to face his keeper. You're not setting a great example, McLaggen shouted back, red-faced and furious. And Harry Potter's now having an argument with his keeper, said Luna serenely, while both Hufflepuffs and Slytherins bellow in the crowd, cheered and jeered. I don't think that'll help them find the snitch, but maybe it's a clever, clever ruse. Swearing, swearing angrily, Harry spun around and set off around the pitch again, scanning the skies of some sign of the tiny winged golden ball. Ginny and Demelza scored a goal apiece, giving the red and gold-clad supporters bellow something to cheer about. Then Cottawater scored again, making things level, but Luna did not seem to have noticed. 
She appeared singularly uninterested in the such mundane things as the score and kept attempting to draw the crowd's attention to such things as interesting shapes, clouds, and the possibility that Zachariah Smith, who had so far failed to maintain possession of the quaffle for longer than a minute, was suffering from something called loser's lurgy. <laughs> 17 or 7040 to Hufflepuff barked Professor McGonagall into Luna's micro Luna's megaphone. Is it already? said Luna vaguely. Oh, look! The Gryffindor keepers got hold of one of the beater's bats. Harry spun around in midair. Sure enough, McLagan, for reasons best known to himself, had pulled Peek's bat from, from him and appeared to be demonstrating how to hit a bludger toward an oncoming Hottawater. Will you give him back his back and get back to the goalpost? roared Harry, pelting toward McLagan, just as McLagan took a ferocious swipe at the bludger and mishit it. A blinding, sickening pain, a flash of light, distant screams, and the sensation of falling down a long tunnel. And the next thing Harry knew, he was lying in a remarkably warm, comfortable bed, looking up at the lamp that was throwing a circle of golden light onto a shadowy sil ceiling he raised his head awkwardly there on his left was a familiar looking freckly red-haired person nice of you to drop in said ron grinning harry blinked and looked around of course he was in the hospital wing the sky outside was indigo streaked with crimson the match must have finished hours ago as had any hope of concerning malfoy harry's head felt strangely heavy he raised a hand and felt a stiff turban of bandages what happened? Crack skull, said Madame Pomfrey, bustling up and pushing him back against his pillows. Nothing to worry about. I mended it at once, but I'm keeping you overnight. You shouldn't overexert yourself for a few hours. I don't want to stay here overnight, said Harry angrily, sitting up and throwing back his covers. I want to find McLaggen and kill him. I'm afraid that would come under the heading of overexertion, said Madame Pomfrey, pushing him firmly back onto the bed and raising his wand raising her wand in a threatening manner. You will stay here until I discharge you, Potter, or I shall call the headmaster. She bustled back into her office, and Harry sank back into the pillows, fuming. Do you know how much we lost by, he asked Ron, through clenched teeth. Well, yeah, I do, said Ron apologetically. Final score is 322.60. Brilliant, said Harry savaging, savagely. Really brilliant. When I get a hold of McLaggen, you don't want to get a hold of him. He's the size of a troll, said Ron reasonably. Personally, I think there's a lot to be said for hexing him with the toenail thing of princes. Anyway, the rest of the team might have dealt with him before you get out of here. And they're not happy. There was a note of badly suppressed glee in Ron's voice. Harry could tell he was nothing short of thrilled that McLaggen had messed up so badly. Harry lay there staring up at the parch of light on the ceiling, his recently mended skull not hurting precisely, but feeling slightly tender underneath all the bandaging. I could hear the match commentary from here, said Ron, his voice now shaking with laughter. I hope Luna always commentates from now on. Loser's allergy. <laughs> but Harry was still too angry to see much humor in the situation, and after a while, Ron's snorts subsided. Jenny came to visit while you were unconscious, he said. After a long pause, Harry's imagination zoomed into overdrive, rapidly constructing a scene in which Jenny's weeping over his lifeless form, confessed her feelings of deep attraction to him, 
of him while Ron gave him gave them his blessing. She reckons you only just arrived on time for the match. How come? You left here early enough? Uh, said Harry at this, as the scene in his mind's eye exploded. Yeah, well, I saw Malfoy sneaking off with a couple of girls who didn't look like they wanted to be with him. And that's the second time he's made sure he isn't down on a Quidditch pitch with the rest of the school. He skipped the last match, too, remember? Harry sighed. Wish I'd follow him now. The match was such a fiasco. Don't be stupid, said Ron sharply. You couldn't have missed a Quidditch match just to follow Malfoy. You're the captain. I want to know what he's up to, said Harry. And don't tell me. It's all in my head, not after what I've overheard between him and Snape. I never said it was all in your head, said Ron, hoisting himself up on an elbow in turn and frowning at Harry. There's no rule saying only one person at a time can be plotting anything in this place. You're getting a bit obsessed with Malfoy, Harry. I mean, think about missing a match just to follow him. I want to catch him at it, said Harry in frustration. I mean, where's he going when he disappears off the map? I don't know. Hogsmeade, suggested Ron, yawning. I've never seen him going anywhere, going along any of the secret passageways on, of the map. I thought they were being watched now, anyways. Well, then, I don't know, said Ron. Silence fell between them. Harry stared up at the circle of lamplight above him, thinking. If only he had Rufus Scrimmador's power, he would have been able to set a tail upon Malfoy. But unfortunately, Harry did not have an office full of roars at his command. He thought fleetingly of trying to set up something, set something up with the DA, but there again was the problem that people would have missed from lessons. Most of them, after all, still had full schedules. There was a low rumbling snore from Ron's bed. After a while, Madame Pomfrey came out of her office, this time wearing a thick dressing gown. It was easiest to feign sleep. Harry rolled over onto his side, listened to all the curtains, closing themselves as they waved her wand. The lamps dimmed, and she returned to her office. He heard the door click behind her and knew that she was off to bed. This was, Harry reflected in the darkness, the third time that he had been brought to the hospital wing because of Quidditch injury. Last time he had fallen off his broom due to the presence of Dementors around the pitch. In the time before that, all the bones had been removed from his arm by the incurably inept Professor Lockhart. That had been his most painful injury by far. He remembered the agony of regrowing an armful of bones, and one night, a discomfort not eased by the arrival of an unexpected visitor in the middle of the... Harry sat bolt upright, his heart pounding, his bandaged turban askew. He had the solution at last. There was a way to have Malfoy followed. How could he have forgotten? Why hadn't he thought of this before? But the question was how to call him. What did you do? Quietly, attentively, Harry spoke into the darkness. Creature! There was a loud crack, and the sounds of scuffling squeaks filled the silent room. Ron awoke with a yelp. What's going- Harry pointed his wand hastily at the door of Madame Pomfrey's office and muttered, Muffiato! So that she would not come running. Then he scrambled to the end of his bed for a better look to see what was going on. Two house elves were rolling around on the floor in the middle of the dormitory, one wearing a shrunken maroon jumper and several woolly hats and the other filthy old rag strung, strung over his hips like a loincloth. Then there was another loud bang, and Peeves the poltergeist appeared in midair above the wrestling elves. 
I was watching that, Potty, he told Harry indignantly, pointing at the fight below before letting out a loud cackle. Look at Ickle Creature squabbling. Bitey bite, punchy punch. Creature will not insult Harry Potter in front of Dobby. No, he won't. Dobby will shut Creature's mouth for him, cried Dobby in a high-pitched voice. Kicky scratchy, cried Peeves happily, now pelting bits of chalk at the elves to enrage them further. Tweaky pokey. Creature will say what he likes about his master. Oh yes, and what a master he is. Filthy friend of mudbloods. Oh, what would poor Creature's mistress say? Exactly, what Creature's mistress would have said. They did not find out, for at the moment Dobby sank his knobby little fist into Creature's mouth and knocked out half his teeth. Harry and Ron both leapt out of their beds and wrenched the two elves apart. Though they continued to try and kick and punch each other, egged on by Peeves who swooped around the lamp squealing, Stick your fingers up his nosy! Draw his cork! Pull his earsies! Harry aimed his wand at Peeves and said, Langlock! Peeves clutched its clutched at his throat, gulped, then swooped from room making obscene gestures, but unable to speak, owing to the fact that the tongue had just glued itself to the roof of his mouth. Nice one, said Ron appreciatively, lifting Dobby into the air so that his flailing limbs no longer made contact with Creature. That was another Prince Hex, wasn't it? Yeah, said Harry, twisting Creature's wizened arm into a half-Nelson. Right. I'm forbidding you to fight each other. Well, creature, you're forbidden to fight Dobby. Dobby, I know I know I'm not allowed to give you orders. Dobby is a free house elf and he can obey anyone he likes and Dobby will do whatever Harry Potter wants him to do. Said Dobby, tears now streaming down his shriveled little face onto the jumper. Okay then, said Harry, and he and Ron both released the elves who fell to the floor but did not continue fighting. Master called me, croaked Creature, sinking into a bow, even as he gave Harry a look that plainly wished him a painful death. Yeah, I did, said Harry, glancing toward Madame Pomfrey's office door to check that Muffiato spell was still working. There was no sign that she had heard any of the commotion. I've got a job for you. Creature will do whatever Master wants said Creature, sinking so low that his lips almost touched his gnarled toes. Because Creature has no choice. But Creature is ashamed to have such master, yes. Dobby will do it, Harry Potter, squeaked Dobby, his tennis ball-sized eyes still swimming in tears. Dobby would be honored to help Harry Potter. Come to think of it, it would be good to have you both. Have both of you, said Harry. Okay, then. I want you to tail Draco Malfoy. Ignoring the look of mingled surprise and exasperation on Ron's face, Harry went on, I want to know where he's going, who he's meeting, and what he's doing. I want you to follow him around the clock. Yes, Harry Potter, said Dobby at once, his great eyes shining with excitement. And if Dobby does it wrong, Dobby will throw himself from the topmost tower, Harry Potter. There won't be any need of that, said Harry hastily. Master wants me to follow the youngest of the Malfoys, croaked Creature. 
Master wants me to spy upon the pure-blood great-nephew of my old mistress? That's the one, said Harry, foreseeing a great danger and determining to prevent it immediately. And you're forbidden to tip him off, creature, or to show him what you're up to, or to talk to him at all, or to write him messages, or to contact him in any way. You got it? He thought he could see Creature struggling to see a loophole in the instructions he had just been given and waited. After a moment or two, and to Harry's great satisfaction, Creature bowed deeply again and said with bitter resentment, Master thinks of everything, and Creature must obey him, even though Creature would much rather be the servant of the Malfoy boy. Oh, yes. That's settled then, Harry said Harry. I'll want regular reports, but make sure I'm not surrounded by people when you turn up. Ron and Hermione are okay. And don't tell anyone what you're doing. Just stick to Malfoy like a couple of warp plasters. And, uh, yeah, so now we got a couple of, uh, couple of creatures on the inside. So, uh, um, kind of reflecting on this for a little bit. Do you think in your opinion, do you think this was a right decision by Harry? Or do you think he's really focusing too much on something that really not... He could be focusing on other things that are more important. Well, there's only one other thing that he really needs to be doing right now, and that's trying to get yeah. the memory off of Slughorn. So I guess like mm-hmm. in that case then he could be focusing his time. But honestly, this is a great way to be able to not delegate a task to somebody else so he doesn't have to worry about being on him nonstop. And now he doesn't have to look at the Marauder's map every 10 seconds every time he's alone in his room. So, I mean, is it kind of creepy and stalkerish? Yeah, absolutely. Is he kind of obsessed with this situation? Way too much. <laughs> but, I mean, at the end of the day, I think it was as good as... A, since he was determined to find it out regardless... This was probably the most efficient way to do it, is to have uh, Dobby and Creature follow him around. So, I don't know. I, I like the idea, since he if he was going to do it anyways, at least he did it, he worked smarter and not harder. Uh, <laughs> he had them yeah. do it for him, so I enjoyed <laughs> that. Other things I want to point out in this chapter is uh, the, the whole Quidditch match, you know. So, people were probably thinking, like, I know when I was reading this for the first time, I was wondering, like, man, what if McLagan does, like, really, really well, and it's going to be tough for him to, like, you know, bring Ron back on the team or whatever, uh, even if he does like really well. But McLagan screwed the pooch, man. He was sitting there trying yeah. to be the captain of Harry's team, telling what players what to do at what time, even to the point where he grabs the beater's bat and swats it and hits the Harry. Like, McLagan did everything in his possible power to never play Quidditch for any house team ever again. Like, so I'm glad that that happened. Ron was super excited about it. Harry's back in the uh, in the old hospital wing, but the one cool thing that did happen and that that's going to be important from here on out is like you said with these elf the elf tales is like actually the name of the uh, the chapter, but it's funny. But they're going to be telling him <laughs> right now from here on out, and we're going to get to see a little bit more about what Malfoy is up to because they do come to him with pretty good information, which we'll find out here in just a little bit. So good stuff. Yeah, man. And with that, all uh, we got a pretty big one coming up. Uh, back into the Pensieve here, and I'm going to turn it right back over to you, my man. 
You got it. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of funny. I only got like three bullet points, and even some of them are like a little bit of reading ones before I'm just taking it to the end of the chapter. So <laughs> it's go one ahead. of those. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those, man, for sure. But it's a really important one, especially when it comes to like certain objects. But anyways, on page 423, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read like the second paragraph here because it foreshadows like disguises used in like alarm raising. That's going to be important. So uh, anyways, what did they row about, he asked, trying to sound casual as they turned onto a seventh floor corridor that was deserted but for a very small girl who had been examining a tapestry of trolls in Tuttis. She looked terrified at the sight of the approaching six years and dropped the heavy brass scales that she was carrying. So all that's super important right there because there's a certain room that is very close to a tapestry of tolls, trolls and uh, it's been used before. Yeah. And I just want to bring our attention to that for a big little foreshadow. So, mm-hmm. um, Going on to page 448, the apparition test is to be held on the 21st of April if they will be 17 by that date. So Ron and Hermione are able to take it, but Harry cannot because he doesn't turn 17 until July. So uh, Hermione actually finally did achieve apparition twice, and Harry himself had done it once, and Ron has still not been able to complete it in any of the uh, lessons that they've been taking. So it's uh, it, it sucks that Harry can't take it yet, but it's not too bad because you will find out uh, he won't he won't be taking it alone. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> uh, now going. <laughs> <laughs> going from there on page 449, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take a little bit. Oh, shoot. You know what I did? I actually went ahead and uh, skipped a little bit before I, I went to a different part of the thing. My apologies. So that was on page, what, 448, I said. Well, guys, forget about that. That's coming up next chapter. I've skipped chapters on this. Yeah, but 449 is a little bit ahead. Man. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Uh, no, page 424, Ginny and Dean fought about Dean laughing at the fact that McLagan hit the blood at Harry. And so, uh, with that, in page 425, Luna gives Harry Dumbledore's lesson invitation, which is set to take place later that same night. And so, from here on page 425, I'm going to read the last paragraph on 425 through the end of this chapter. And then that will get us into page 448 after that. So, <laughs> anyways, I'll go ahead and, and start taking that from here. So. Ron looked both sulky and annoyed when he appeared at breakfast half an hour later, and though he sat with Lavender, Harry did not see them exchange a word all the time they were together. Hermione was acting as though she was quite oblivious to all of this, but once or twice Harry saw an inexplicable smirk cross her face, and all that day she seemed to be in a particularly good mood, and that evening in the common room she even consented to look over, in other words, to finish writing. Harry's herbology essay, something that she had been resolutely refusing to do up until this point because she had known Harry would let Ron copy his work. Thanks a lot, Hermione, said Harry, giving her a hasty pat on the back as he checked his watch and saw that it was nearly 8 o'clock. Listen, I've got to hurry or I'll be late for Dumbledore. She did not answer, but merely crossed out a few of his feebler sentences in a weary sort of way. Grinning, Harry hurried out of the portrait hole and off to the headmaster's office. The gargoyle leapt aside at the mention of the toffee eclairs, and Harry took the spiral staircase two steps at a time, knocking on the door just as a clock within chimed eight. Enter, called Dumbledore. But as Harry put a hand to the push the door, it was wrenched for open from inside, and there stood Professor Trelawney. Aha! she cried, pointing dramatically at Harry as she blinked at him through her magnified spectacles. So this is the reason I am to be thrown unceremoniously from your office, Dumbledore. My dear Sybil, said Dumbledore in a slightly exasperated voice, 
There is no question of throwing you unceremoniously from anywhere, but Harry does have an appointment, and I really don't think there is any more to be said. Very well, said Professor Trelawney in a deeply wounded voice. If you will not banish the usurping nag, <laughs> so be it. Perhaps I shall find a school where my talents are better appreciated. And she pushed past Harry and disappeared down the spiral staircase. They heard her stumble halfway down, and Harry guessed that she had tripped over one of her trailing shawls. Please close the door and sit down, Harry, said Dumbledore, sounding rather tired. Harry obeyed, noticing that he took his usual seat in front of Dumbledore's desk, that the pensive lay between them once again. As did two more tiny crystal bottles full of swirling memory. Professor Trelawney still isn't happy friends is teaching them, Harry asked. No, said Dumbledore, divination is turning out to be much more trouble than I could have foreseen, never having studied the subject myself. I cannot ask Ferenz to return to the forest where he is now an outcast, nor can I ask Sybil Trelawney to leave. Between ourselves, she has no idea of the danger she would be in outside of the castle. She does not know, and I think it would be unwise to enlighten her, that she made the prophecy about you and Voldemort, you see. Dumbledore heaved a deep sigh and then said, but never mind my staffing problems, we have much more important matters to discuss. Firstly, have you managed the task I set you at the end of our previous lesson? Uh, said Harry brought up short. What with apparition lessons and Quidditch and Ron being poisoned, and getting his skull cracked and his determination to find out what Draco Malfoy was up to, Harry had almost forgotten about the memory Dumbledore had asked him to extract from Professor Slughorn. Well, I asked Professor Slughorn about it at the end of potions, sir, but uh, he wouldn't give it to me. There was a little silence. I see, said Dumbledore, eventually peering at Harry over the top of his half-moon spectacles, and given Harry the unusual sensation that he was being x-rayed. And you feel that you have exerted your very best efforts in this matter, do you? That you have exercised all of your considerable ingenuity? That you have left no depth of cunning unplumbed in your quest to retrieve the memory? Well, Harry stalled at a loss for what to say next. His single attempt to get a hold of memory had seemed suddenly embarrassingly feeble. Well, the day Ron swallowed the low potion by mistake, I took him to Professor Slughorn, and I thought, maybe if I got Professor Slughorn in a good enough mood... And did that work? asked Dumbledore. Well, no, sir, because Ron got poisoned. Which naturally made you forget all about trying to retrieve the memory. I would have expected nothing less, while your best friend was in danger. Once it became clear that Mr. Weasley was going to make a full recovery, however, I would have hoped that you returned to the task I sent you. I thought it made it clear to you how very important that memory is. Indeed, I did try my best to impress upon you that it is the most crucial memory of all and that we will be wasting our time without it. A hot, prickling feeling of shame spread from the top of Harry's head all the way down his body. Dumbledore had not raised his voice. He did not even sound angry. But Harry would have preferred him to yell. This cold disappointment was worse than anything. Sir, he said a little desperately, it, it isn't that I wasn't bothered or anything, I just had other... Other things... Other things on your mind, Dumbledore finished the sentence for him. I see. Silence fell between them again. The most uncomfortable silence Harry had ever experienced with Dumbledore, and it seemed to go on and on, punctuated by only the little grunting snores of the portraits of Amando Dippet over Dumbledore's head. Harry felt strangely diminished, as though he had shrunk a little since he had entered the room. When he could no longer stand it, he said, Professor Dumbledore, I'm really sorry... I should have done more. I should have realized you wouldn't have asked me to do it if it wasn't really important. Thank you for saying that, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. May I hope, then, that you will give this matter higher priority from now on? There will be little point in our meeting after tonight unless we have that memory. I'll do it, sir. I'll get it from him, he said earnestly. 
Then we shall say no more just about it now, said Dumbledore more kindly, but continue with our story where we left off. You remember where that was? Yes, sir, said Harry quickly. Voldemort killed his father and his grandparents and made it look as though his uncle Morphine did it. Then he went back to Hogwarts and asked, uh, he asked Professor Slughorn about Horcruxes. He mumbled shamefacedly. Very good, said Dumbledore. Now you will remember, I hope, that I told you at the very outset of these meetings of ours that we would be entering the realms of guesswork and speculation. Yes, sir. Thus far, as I hope you agree, I have shown you reasonably firm sources of fact for my deductions as to what Voldemort did up until the age of 17. Harry nodded. But now, Harry, now things become murkier and stranger. If it was difficult to find evidence about the boy riddle, it has been almost impossible to find anyone prepared to reminisce about the man Voldemort. In fact, I doubt whether there is a soul alive apart from himself who could give us a full account of his life since he left Hogwarts. However, I have two last memories that I would like to share with you. Dumbledore indicated the two little crystal bottles gleaming inside the pensieve. I shall be glad of your opinion as to whether the conclusions I have drawn seem likely. The idea that Dumbledore valued his opinion this highly made Harry feel even more deeply ashamed that he failed in his task of retrieving the Horcrux memory, and he shifted guiltily in his seat as Dumbledore raised the first of the two bottles to the light and examined it. I hope you are not too tired of diving into other people's memories, for they are curious recollections, these two. This first one came from a very old house elf by the name of Hokey. Before we see what Hokey witnessed, I must quickly recount how Lord Voldemort left Hogwarts. He reached the seventh year of his schooling with, as you might have expected, top grades in every examination he had taken. All around him his classmates were deciding which jobs they were going to pursue once they left Hogwarts. Nearly everybody expected spectacular things from Tom Riddle, prefect, head boy, winner of the award for special services to the school. I know that several teachers, Professor Slughorn amongst them, suggested that he join the Ministry of Magic, offered to set up appointments, put him in touch with useful contacts. He refused all offers. The next thing the staff knew, Voldemort was working at Borgen and Burks. At Borgen and Burks, Harry repeated, stunned. At Borgen and Burks, repeated Dumbledore calmly. I think you will see what attractions the place held from when we have entered Hokey's memory. But this was not Voldemort's first choice of a job. Hardly anyone knew of it at the time. I was one of the few in whom the headmaster confided. But Voldemort first approached Professor Dippet and asked whether he could remain at Hogwarts as a teacher. He wanted to stay here? Why? asked Harry, more amazed still. I believe he has several reasons, though he confided none of them to Professor Dippet, said Dumbledore. Firstly, and very importantly, Voldemort was, I believe, more attached to the school than he has ever been to a person. Hogwarts was where he had been the happiest, the first and only place he had felt at home. Harry felt slightly uncomfortable at these words, for this is exactly how he felt about Hogwarts, too. Secondly, the castle was a stronghold of ancient magic. Undoubtedly, Voldemort had penetrated many more of its secrets than most of its students who passed through the place, but he may have felt that there were still mysteries to unravel, stories, stores of magic to tap. And thirdly, as a teacher, he would have great power and influence over young witches and wizards. Perhaps he had gained the idea from Professor Slughorn, the teacher with whom he was on best terms, who had demonstrated how influential a role of a teacher can play. I do not imagine for an instant that Voldemort envisaged spending the rest of his life at Hogwarts, but I do think that he saw it as a useful recruiting ground and a place where he might begin to build himself an army. But he didn't get the job, sir? No, he did not. 
Professor Dippet told him that he was too young at 18, but invited him to reapply in a few years, if he still wished to teach. How would you feel about that, sir? asked Harry hesitantly. Deeply uneasy, said Dumbledore. I'd advise Armando against the appointment. I did not give the reasons I've given you, for Professor Dippet was very fond of Voldemort, and convinced of his honesty. But I did not want Lord Voldemort back at this school, especially not in a position of power. What job did he want, sir? What subject did he want to teach? Somehow Harry knew the answer before Dumbledore gave it. Defense against the dark arts. It was being taught at the time by an old professor by the name of Galadia Merrythought, who had been at Hogwarts for nearly 50 years. So Voldemort went off to Borgen and Burks, and all the staff who had admired him said what a waste it was, a brilliant young wizard like that working in a shop. However, Voldemort was no mere assistant. Polite and handsome and clever, he was soon given particular jobs of the type that only exists in a place like Borgen and Burks, which specializes, as you know, Harry, in objects with unusual and powerful properties. Voldemort was sent to persuade people to part with their treasures for sale by the partners, and he was, by all accounts, unusually gifted at doing this. I'll bet he was, said Harry, unable to contain himself. Well, quite, said Dumbledore with a faint smile. And now it is time to hear from Hokey the house elf, who worked for a very old, very rich witch by the name of Hepzibah Smith. Dumbledore tapped a bottle with his wand, the cork flew out, and he tapped the swirling memory into the pensieve, saying as he did so, After you, Harry. And Harry got to his feet and bent once more over the rippling silver contents of the stone basin until his face touched them. He tumbled through dark nothingness and landed in a sitting room in front of an immensely fat old lady wearing an elaborate ginger wig and a brilliant pink set of robes that flowed all around her, giving her the look of a melted iced cake. She was looking into a small jeweled mirror, dabbing rouge onto her already scarlet cheeks with a large powder puff while the tiniest and oldest house of Harry had ever seen laced her fleshy feet into tight satin slippers. "'Hurry up, Hokey,' said Hepzibah imperiously. "'He said he'd come at four. It's only a couple minutes, too, and he's never been late yet.' She tucked away her powder puff as the house elf straightened up. The top of the elf's head barely reached the seat of Hepzibah's chair, and her papery skin hung off her frame, just like the crisp linen sheet she wore draped around like a toga. "'How do I look?' said Hepzibah, turning her head to admire the various angles of her face in the mirror. "'Lovely, madam,' squeaked Hokey. And Harry could only assume that it was in Hokey's contract that she must lie through her teeth when asked this question, because Hepzibah Smith looked a long way from a lovely woman, in his opinion. <laughs> a tinkling doorbell rang, and both Mistress and Elf jumped. "'Quick! Quick! He's here, Hokey!' And Hepzibah and the elf scurried out of the room, which was so crammed with objects that it was difficult to see how anyone could navigate their way across it without knocking over at least a dozen things. There were cabinets full of little lacquered boxes, cases full of gold-embossed books, shelves of orbs and celestial globes, and many flourishing potted plants in brass containers. In fact, the room looked a lot like a cross between a magical antique shop and a conservatory. The house self returned within minutes, followed by a tall young man who Harry had no difficulty whatsoever as recognized, recognizing as Voldemort. He was plainly dressed in a black suit, his hair was a little longer than it had been at school, and his cheeks were hollowed, but all of this suited him. He looked more handsome than ever. He picked his way through the cramped room with an air that showed he had visited many times before and bowed low over Hepzibah's fat little hand, brushing it with his lips. "'I brought you flowers,' he said quietly, producing a bunch of roses from nowhere." "'You naughty boy, you shouldn't have,' squealed old Hepzibah, 
though Harry noticed that she had an empty vase standing ready on the nearest little table. You do spoil this old lady, Tom. Sit down, sit down. Where's Hokey? Ah. The household had come dashing into the room carrying a tray of little cakes which she set at her mistress's elbow. Help yourself, Tom. I know how you love my cakes. No, how are you? You look pale. They overwork you at that shop. I've said it a hundred times. Voldemort smiled mechanically and Hepsio simpered. Well, what's your excuse for visiting this time? She asked, batting her lashes. Mr. Burke would like to make an improved offer for the goblet-made armor, said Voldemort. Five hundred galleons, he feels it's more than a fair. Now, now, not so fast, or I'll think you're only here for my trinkets, pouty Hepzibah. I am ordered here because of them, said Voldemort quietly. I am only a poor assistant, madam, who must do as he is told. Mr. Burke wishes me to inquire. Oh, Mr. Burke, fooey, said Hepzibah, waving a little hand. I have something to show you that I've never shown Mr. Burke. Can you keep a secret, Tom? Will you promise you won't tell Mr. Burke I've got it? He'd never let me rest if he knew I'd shown it to you. And I'm not selling it. Not to Burke, not to anyone. But you, Tom, you'll appreciate it for its history. Not how many galleons you can get for it. I'd be glad to see anything Miss Hepzibah shows me, said Voldemort quietly. And Hepzibah gave another girlish giggle. I had Hokey bring it out for me. Hokey, where are you? I want to show Mr. Riddle our finest treasure. In fact, bring both while you're at it. Here, madam, squeaked the house elf, and Harry saw two leather boxes, one on top of the other, moving across the room as if they had of their own volition, though he knew the tiny elf was holding them over her head as she wended her way between the tables, poofs, and footstills. Now, said Hepsibah happily, taking the boxes from the elf, laying them in her lap, and preparing to open the topmost one, I think you'll like this, Tom. Oh, if my family knew what I was showing you, they can't wait to get their hands on this. She opened the lid. Harry edged forward a little to get a better view and saw what looked like a small golden cup with two finely wrought handles. I wonder whether you know what it is, Tom. Pick it up. Have a good look, whispered Hepzibah, and Voldemort stretched out a long-fingered hand and lifted the cup by one handle out of its snug silken wrappings. Harry thought he saw a red gleam in his dark eyes. His greedy expression was curiously mirrored on Hepsiba's face, except her tiny eyes were fixed upon Voldemort's handsome features. A badger, murmured Voldemort, examining the engraving upon the cup. Then this was... Helga Hufflepuffs, as you very well know, you clever boy, said Hepsiba, leaning over with a loud creaking of corsets and actually pinching his hollow cheeks. Didn't I tell you I was distantly descended? This has been handed down in the family for years. Lovely, isn't it? And all sorts of powers it's supposed to possess, too, but I haven't tested them thoroughly. I just keep it nice and safe in here. And she hooked the cup back off Voldemort's long forefinger and restored it gently to its box, too intent upon settling it carefully back into position to notice the shadow that crossed Voldemort's face as the cup was taken away. Now then, said Hepsibah happily, where's Hokey? Oh yes, there you are. Take that away now, Hokey. And the elf obediently took the box cup, and Hepzibah turned his attention to the much flatter box in her lap. I think you'll like this even more, Tom, she whispered. Lean in a little, dear boy, so you can see. Of course, Burke knows I've got this one. I bought it from him, and I dare say he'd love to get it back when I'm gone. She slid back the fine filigree clasp and flipped the box open. There, upon the smooth crimson velvet lay a heavy golden locket. Voldemort reached out his hand, without invitation this time, and held it up to the light, staring at it. Slytherin's mark, he said quietly, as the light played on an ornament serpentine S. 
That's right, said Hepsi, but delighted, transfixed apparently at the gaze of Voldemort at the locket. I had to pay an arm and a leg for it, but I couldn't let it pass. Not a real treasure like that. Had to have it for my collection. Burke bought it, apparently, from a ragged-looking woman who seemed to have stolen it, but had no idea of its true value. There is no mistaking it this time. Voldemort's eyes flashed scarlet at the words, and Harry saw his knuckles whiten on the locket's chain. I dare say Burke paid her a pittance, but there you are. Pretty, isn't it? And again, all kinds of powers attributed to it, though I just keep it nice and safe. She reached out to take the locket back, and for a moment, Harry thought Voldemort was not going to let go of it, but then it had slid through his fingers and was back in his red velvet cushion. So there you are, Tom. I hope you enjoyed that. She looked him full in the face, and for the first time, Harry saw her foolish smile falter. Are you all right, dear? Oh, yes, said Voldemort quietly. Yes, I'm very well. I thought, ah, but a trick of the light, I suppose, said Hepsiba, looking unnerved. And Harry guessed that she, too, had seen the momentary red gleam in Voldemort's eyes. Here, Hokey, take these away and lock them up again. The usual enchantments. Time to leave, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. And as the little elf bobbed away bearing the boxes, Dumbledore grasped Harry's arm once again above the elbow, and together they rose up through oblivion and back into Dumbledore's office. Hepzibah Smith died two days after that little scene, said Dumbledore resuming his seat and indicating that Harry should do the same. Hokey the house elf was convicted by the Ministry of her poisoning of her mistress's evening cocoa by accident. No way, said Harry angrily. I see we are of one mind. Certainly, there are many similarities between this death and that of the riddles. In both cases, someone else took the blame, someone who had a clear memory of having caused the death. Hokey confessed? She remembered putting something in her mistress's cocoa that turned out to not be sugar, but a lethal and little-known poison, said Dumbledore. It was concluded that she had not meant to do it, but being old and confused, Voldemort modified her memory just like she, he did with morphine. Yes, that is my conclusion too, said Dumbledore, and just as with morphine, the Ministry was predisposed to suspect Hokey, because she was a house elf, said Harry. He had rarely felt more sympathy in the society Hermione had set up, S-P-E-W. Precisely, said Dumbledore. She was old, she admitted to having tampered with the drink, and nobody at the Ministry bothered to inquire further. As in the case with morphine, by the time I traced her and managed to extract this memory, her life was almost over. But her memory, of course, proves nothing except that Voldemort knew of the existence of the cup and the locket. By the time Hokey was convicted, Hebsa's family had already realized two of her greatest treasures were missing. It took them a while to be sure of this, for she had many hiding places, having always guarded her collection most jealously. But before they were sure beyond doubt that the cup and the locket were both gone, the assistant who had worked at Borgen and Burks, the young man who had visited Hepzibah so regularly and charmed her so well, had resigned his post and vanished. His superiors had no idea where he had gone, and they were as surprised as anyone at his disappearance. And that was the last that we have seen or heard of Tom Riddle for a very long time. Now, said Dumbledore, if you don't mind, Harry, I want to pause once more to draw your attention to certain points of our story. Voldemort had committed another murder. Whether it was the first since he killed the Riddles, I do not know, but I think it was. This time, as you have seen, he killed not for revenge, but for gain. He wanted two fabulous trophies that poor besotted old woman showed him, just as he once robbed the other children at his orphanage, just as he had stolen his Uncle Morphine's ring, so he ran off now with Hebzibah's cup and locket. But, said Harry frowning, it seems mad, risking everything, throwing away his job just for those. Mad to you, perhaps, but not to Voldemort, said Dumbledore. 
I hope you will understand in due course exactly what those objects mean to him. Harry, but first you must admit that it is not difficult to imagine that he saw the locket, at least, as rightfully his. The locket maybe, said Harry, but why take the cup as well? It had belonged to another of Hogwarts' founders, said Dumbledore. I think he still felt a great pull towards the school and that he could not resist an object so steeped in Hogwarts' history. There were other reasons, I think, I hope to be able to demonstrate to you in due course. And now, for my very last recollection, I have to show you, at least until you manage to retrieve Professor Slughorn's memory for us. Ten years separates Hokey's memory and this one. Ten years during which we can only guess what Voldemort was doing. Harry got to his feet once more, as Dumbledore emptied the last memory into the pensive. Whose memory is it? he asked. Mine, said Dumbledore. And Harry dived after Dumbledore through the shifting silver mass, landing in the very office he had just left. There was Fawkes slumbering happily on his perch, and there behind the desk was Dumbledore, who looked very similar to the Dumbledore standing beside Harry, though both his hands were whole and undamaged, and his face was perhaps a little less lined. The one difference between the present-day office and this one was that it was snowing in the past, bluish flecks were drifting past the window in the dark, and building up on the outside ledge. The younger Dumbledore seemed to have been waiting for something, and sure enough, moments after their arrival, there was a knock on the door, and he said, Enter. Harry let out a hastily stifled gasp. Voldemort had entered the room. His features were not those Harry had seen emerge from the Great Stone Cauldron almost two years ago. They were not as snake-like, the eyes were not yet scarlet, the face not yet mask-like, and yet he was no longer the handsome Tom Riddle either. It was as though his features had been burned and blurred. They were waxy and oddly distorted, and the whites of his eyes now had a permanent bloody look, as though the pupils were not yet the slits that Harry knew they would become. He was wearing a long black cloak, and his face was pale as the snow glistening on his shoulders. The Dumbledore behind the desk showed no sign of surprise. Evidently, this visit had been made by appointment. "'Good evening, Tom,' said Dumbledore easily. "'Won't you sit down?' "'Thank you,' said Voldemort as he took the seat to which Dumbledore had gestured, the very seat, by the looks of it, that Harry had just vacated in the present. "'I heard that you had become headmaster,' he said, his voice slightly higher and colder than it had been. "'A worthy choice.' "'I am glad you approve,' said Dumbledore, smiling. "'May I offer you a drink?' "'That would be welcome,' said Voldemort. "'I have come a long way.' Dumbledore stood and swept over to the cabinet, where he now kept the pensive. But which, but which then was full of bottles. Having handed Voldemort a goblet of wine, he poured one for himself and returned to the seat behind his desk. So, Tom, to what do I owe the pleasure? Voldemort did not answer at once, but merely sipped his wine. They do not call me Tom anymore, he said. These days I am known as... I know what you are known as, said Dumbledore, smiling pleasantly, but to me, I am afraid you will always be Tom Riddle. It's one of the irritating things about old teachers. I'm afraid they never quite forget their charge's youthful beginnings. He raised the glass as though toasting Voldemort, whose face remained expressionless. Nevertheless, Harry felt the atmosphere in the room change subtly. Dumbledore's refusal to use Voldemort's chosen name was a refusal to allow Voldemort to dictate the terms of the meeting, and Harry could tell that Voldemort took it as such. I am surprised you remained here so long, said Voldemort after a short pause. I have always wondered why a wizard such as yourself never wished to leave the school. Well, said Dumbledore, still smiling, to a wizard such as myself, there can be nothing more important than passing on my ancient skills, helping hone young minds. If I remember correctly, you once saw the attraction of teaching, too. 
I see it still, said Voldemort. I merely wondered why you, who are so often asked for advice by the ministry, and who have twice, I think, been offered the post of minister. Three times at the last count, actually, said Dumbledore, but the ministry never attracted me as a career. Again, something we have in common, I think. Voldemort inclined his head unsmilingly and took a sip of wine. Dumbledore did not break the silence that stretched between them, but waited with a look of pleasant expectancy for Voldemort to talk first. I have returned, he said after a little while, later perhaps than Professor Dippet expected, but I have returned nevertheless to request again what he once told me I was too young to have. I have come to ask that you permit me to return to this castle to teach. I think you must know that I have seen and done much since I left this place. I could show and tell your students things they can gain from no other wizard. Dumbledore considered Voldemort over the top of his own goblet for a while before speaking. Yes, I certainly do know that you have seen and done much since leaving us, he said quietly. Rumors of your doings have reached your old teacher, Tom. I should be sorry to believe half of them. Voldemort's expression remained impassive. He said, Greatness inspires envy. Envy engenders spite. Spite spawns lies. You must know this, Dumbledore. You call it greatness, what you have been doing, do you? Asked Dumbledore delicately. Certainly, said Voldemort, and his eyes seemed to burn red. I have experimented. I have pushed the boundaries of magic further, perhaps, than they have ever been pushed. Of some kinds of magic, Dumbledore corrected him quietly. Of some. Of others, you remain, forgive me, woefully ignorant. And for the first time, Voldemort smiled. It was a taut leer, an evil thing, more threatening than a look of rage. The old argument, he said softly. But nothing I have seen in the world has supported your famous pronouncement that love is more powerful than my kind of magic, Dumbledore. Perhaps you've been looking in the wrong places, suggested Dumbledore. Well, then what better place to start my fresh researches than here at Hogwarts, said Voldemort. Will you let me return? Will you let me share my knowledge with your students? I place myself and my talents at your disposal. I am yours to command. Dumbledore raised his eyebrows. And what will you become of those of who you command? What will happen to those who call themselves, or so rumor has it, the Death Eaters? Harry could tell Voldemort had not expected Dumbledore to know this name. He saw Voldemort's eyes flash red again and slit like the nostrils flare. My friends, he said after a moment's pause, will carry on without me, I am sure. I'm glad to hear that you consider them as friends, said Dumbledore. I was under the impression that they are more in the order of servants. You are mistaken, said Voldemort. Then, if I were to go to Hogshead tonight, I would not find a group of them, not Rosier, Mulkyber, Dullahov, awaiting your return. Devoted friends to travel this far with you on a snowy night merely to wish you luck as you attempted to secure a teaching post. There could be no doubt that Dumbledore's detailed knowledge of those with whom he was traveling was even less welcome to Voldemort. However, he rallied almost at once. You are omniscient as ever, Dumbledore. Oh no, merely friendly with a local barman, said Dumbledore lightly. Now, Tom. Dumbledore set down his empty glass and drew himself up in the seat, tips of his fingers together in a very characteristic gesture. Let us speak openly. Why have you come here tonight, surrounded by henchmen, to request a job we both know you do not want? Voldemort looked coldly surprised. A job I do not want? On the contrary, Dumbledore, I want it very much. Oh, you want to come back to Hogwarts? But you don't want to teach any more now than you wanted to teach when you were 18. What is it that you're after, Tom? Why not try an open request for once? Voldemort sneered. If you don't want to give me the job... Of course I don't, said Dumbledore, and I don't think for a second you expected me to. 
Nevertheless, you came here. You asked. You must have had a purpose. Voldemort stood up. He looked less like Tom Riddle than ever, his features thick with rage. This is your final word? It is, said Dumbledore, also standing. Then we have nothing more to say to each other. No, nothing, said Dumbledore, and a great sadness filled his face. The time is long gone where I could frighten you with a burning wardrobe and force you to make repayment for your crimes. But I wish I could, Tom. I wish I could. For a second, Harry's on the verge of shouting a pointless warning. He was sure that Voldemort's hand had twitched towards his pocket and his wand. But then the moment had passed and Voldemort turned away and the door was closing and he was gone. Harry felt Dumbledore's hands close over his arms again and moments later they were standing together almost in the same spot but there was no snow building on the window ledge and Dumbledore's hand was blackened and dead looking once more. Why? said Harry at once looking up into Dumbledore's face. Why did he come back? Did you ever find out? I have ideas, said Dumbledore, but no more than that. What ideas, sir? I shall tell you, Harry, when you have retrieved that memory from Professor Slughorn. When you have that last piece of the jigsaw, everything will, I hope, be clear to both of us. Harry was still burning with curiosity, even though Dumbledore had walked to the door and was holding it open for him, he did not move at once. Was he after the defense against the dark arts job again, sir? He didn't say. Oh, he definitely wanted the defense against the dark arts job, said Dumbledore. The aftermath of our little meeting proved that. You see, we have never been able to keep a defense against a dark arts teacher for longer than a year since I refused the post to Lord Voldemort. And that tackles chapter 20. And if that's not some of the biggest information that we're going to receive, I don't know what is, man. So <laughs> we, we start out, right, with hearing a little bit about this old woman, old rich woman named Hepzibah Smith. And she has these really crazy, expensive, rare artifacts that have ties to the founders of Hogwarts. Like the famous witches and wizards of their age, Salazar Slytherin, Helga Hufflepuff. Now, they didn't mention Rowena Wavenclaw or Godric Gryffindor yet, but you know, in the term of the four founders, she at least has two very important relics of two of those founders. And that's going to come into play because, if we, as we remember from last week, we were talking about young Tom Riddle liked to collect trophies. And it's mentioned again here that you know he has like a, uh, an affinity for collecting rare and important trophies. So we're going to learn a little bit about the importance of those going on. And then going moving a little bit further, we get to see, honestly, how I would say Dumbledore did a lot of damage control in refusing Voldemort the post of the teaching position because imagine if Voldemort was allowed to come back as a teacher and how many he would have recruited to the dark arts and really could have <laughs> waged a war for like generational people you know like kids against parents and stuff like it could have been a nightmare but Dumbledore had the presence of mind to understand what it was that Voldemort was doing in the real world and how it was not the uh, right kinds of magic how it was the evil kinds of magic that Voldemort was tapping into that even though he did admit that they were great, uh, they were... He, what did he say? He's like, I wish I could still scare you like back in the day where I could set a wardrobe on fire and make you pay repayments for your crimes. But uh, I can't anymore. I wish I could. So I thought that there was a lot of important stuff in that de in that chapter and the details. What about you? What did you think about it? Yeah, it's just amazing how detailed it is as far as even the backstory on like why Voldemort wanted to become a teacher. Um, you know, he's not there just to like recruit an army. Like it's for a specific purpose that plays into literally this sole reason right here <laughs> that this all plays into. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just interesting to think that 
you know, what if Dumbledore was never even in that position? I mean, the whole first uprising could have taken over everything at that point if it wasn't for Dumbledore, really. Um, yeah, but it's a lot of detail. And that's what's so great about this book is it, it's amazing how, you know, J.K. Rowling keeps it um, on the edge of your seat suspenseful why she's fitting in so much detail that brings in these full circle moments uh, from things going all the way back as far as, you know, Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. Uh, and it all plays in right here. Uh, yeah, uh, good stuff, man. Great stuff. I also was going to say, too, on top of that, like, with... No, we, we, when we, we follow his trail after right after he leaves Hogwarts, he starts working in a shop in Borgen and Burks. Like... You know, mm -hmm. it's pretty crazy how he was top of everything in his class, and he goes and works basically, you know, to not put it in crude sense, but he was basically a bagger at a grocery store. You know what I mean? If you want to put it into human, right. <laughs> like, you know, like just basically like a, a job that isn't glo isn't a glorified job. Like, it's still important. Like, everyone's job's important to put food on the table. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that, you know, if someone who finished top in everything, you expect, you know, greatness pretty much immediately from him. But he decided he wanted to work in a dark artifact shop and uh and where that kind of took him from there and and how after he got those two items from Hepzibah Smith he just kind of fell off the face of the planet for a few years that's a loss someone saw from Voldemort for a very long time so I thought that was pretty interesting as well yeah it's so. just amazing and this is where I have so many problems with like the film which you know that's our differences episode and stuff but that's what's so great about these books is there's a, a purpose for everything you know, a lot of people watch these films and they just think Voldemort, think of him as like some monster, which it really, you know, he looks that way because of, you know, all the immortality and the regeneration uh, spell, all that stuff really combined and, you know, what we're really getting into here. But like, you know, if you just see the films, people think he looks that way just because they decided to make some monster this <laughs> way and it really has nothing to do with that i mean if you even look into this chapter it constantly describes him as you know he was one of the most like intelligent handsome sought after people in all of hogwarts and you never see that in the films ever they just thought he was like some like darth vader antagonist that for some reason was basically born that way that never got a suit <laughs> like it, it makes no sense so yeah it, it's uh I, these are super important chapters where you know if you cut out really one detail um especially that chapter like you cut out one detail like it ruins the whole thing so a lot of great detail there and full circle moments for sure so i'm going to come through a couple bullet points before i let chase take us through the end of this next chapter here going into chapter 21 the unknowable room just a couple things I want to mention on this part. <clears throat> the first one, because uh, I, 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 <laughs> I'll do this first one here, then the second one I already kind <laughs> of got ahead of myself and read it already. Uh, but uh, let me go ahead and start here on, the, on page 447, starting on chapter 21, The Unknowable Room. Um, the the last paragraph, through the first paragraph on the following page, pretty good foreshadow, but um, the Harry ignored her. He had just found an incantation, Secumsempra, scrawled in a margin above the intriguing words four enemies in quotations and was itching to try it out but thought it best not to in front of Hermione 
Instead, he surreptitiously folded down the corner of the page. So that's a big foreshadow. That exact spell is mm-hmm. going to come up pretty big later on, and it's you know yeah. so far all of the the Half Blood Prince's spells and hexes have been pretty useful. Some have been kind of funny, you know, but. And when it says for enemies in quotations, it really means for some best, like use it on your enemies. And I won't say anything more there. But uh, then on page 448, this is where I kind of made the mistake and said it earlier. The apparition test was to be held on the 21st of April. If they'll be 17 by that date. And Ron and Hermione are able to take it, but Harry cannot because he doesn't turn 17 till July. Uh, and like I mentioned before, Hermione achieved apparition twice. Harry himself had done it once. And Ron still was not able to do it as of this time. But... Uh, Anyways, I'll go ahead and read from page, uh, read from the second to last paragraph on page 449 uh, through a, pa- a paragraph on page 450 here, just half a page. So, uh, Ah, no, said Ron, staring horror-struck at the parchment. Don't say I'll have to write the whole thing out again. It's okay, we can fix it, said Hermione, pulling the essay towards her and taking out her wand. I love you, Hermione, said Ron, sinking back into his chair, rubbing his eyes wearily. Hermione turned faintly pink, but merely said, Don't let Lavender hear you saying that. I won't, said Ron into his hands, or maybe I will. Then she'll ditch me. Why don't you just ditch her if you want to finish it, asked Harry. You haven't ever chucked anyone, have you, said Ron. You and Cho just sort of fell apart, yeah. Well, I wish that would happen with me and Lavender, said Ron gloomily, watching Hermione silently tapping each of his misspelled words with the end of her wand so that he corrected themselves on the page. But the more I hint I want to finish it, the tighter she holds on. It's like going out with the giant squid. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. On page 451, Creature and Dobby appear to give Harry a report on Malfoy. And so I'll go ahead and give a short report there and just a couple of things that were mentioned. Uh, we'll start here with on page 452... Harry Potter, sir, squeaked Dobby, his great orb-like eyes shining in the firelight. The Malfoy boy is breaking no rules that Dobby can discover, but he is still keen to avoid detection. He has been making regular visits to the seventh floor with a variety of other students to keep watch from while he enters. The room of requirement, said Harry, smacking himself hard on the forehead with the advanced potion-making book. Hermione and Ron stared at him, too. That's where he's been sneaking off to. That's where he's doing, whatever he's doing, and I bet that's why he's been disappearing off the map. Come to think of it, I've never seen the room requirement on there. Maybe the Marauders never knew the room was there, said Ron. I think it'll be part of the magic of the room, said Hermione. If you need it to be unplottable, it will be. Dobby, have you managed to get in to have a look at what Malfoy's doing, said Harry eagerly. No, Harry Potter, that is impossible, said Dobby. No, it's not, said Harry at once. Malfoy got into our headquarters there last year, so... I'll be able to get in and spy on him, no problem. But I don't think he will, Harry, said Hermione slowly. Malfoy already knew exactly how we were using the room, didn't he? Because that stupid Marietta had blabbed. He needed the room to become the headquarters of the DA, and so it did. But you don't know what room becomes when Malfoy goes in there, so you don't know what to ask it to transform into. There'll be a way around it, said Harry dismissively. You've done brilliantly, Dobby. Creature's done well, too, she said Hermione kindly, but far from looking grateful, Creature averted his huge bloodshot eyes and croaked at the ceiling. The mudblood speaking to Creature. Creature will pretend he cannot hear. Get out of it, Harry snapped at him, and Creature made one last deep bow and disapparated. You better go and get some sleep, too, Dobby. 
Thank you, Harry Potter, sir, squeaked Dobby happily, and he too vanished. How good's this, said Harry enthusiastically, turning to Ron and Hermione. The movement in the room was elf-free again. The moment the room was elf-free again. We know where Malfoy is going. We've got him cornered now. Yeah, it's great, said Ron glumly, who was attempting to mop the sodden mass of ink that had been recently an almost completed essay. Hermione pulled it toward her and began siphoning the ink off with her wand. But what's all this about him going up there with a variety of students? How many people are in on it? You wouldn't think he'd trust lots of them to know what he's do Yeah, that is weird, said Harry, frowning. I heard him telling Crabbe that it wasn't Crabbe's business what he was doing, so what's he telling all the... All the... His voice tallied away as he stared into the fire. God, I've been so stupid, he said quietly. It's obvious, isn't it? There was a great vat of it down in the dungeon. He could have nicked it at any time during that lesson. Nicked what? Polyjuice potion. He stole some of the polyjuice potions Slughorn showed us in our first potions lesson. There aren't a whole variety of students standing guard for Malfoy. It's just Crab and Goyle as usual. Yeah, it all fits, said Harry, jumping up to start pacing in front of the fire. They're stupid enough to do what they're told, even if he won't tell them what he's up to. But he doesn't seem to want them to be seen lurking around outside the room requirements, so he's got them taking polyjuice potion to make them look like other people. Those two girls I saw him with when we missed, when he missed Quidditch? It was Crab and Goyle. Do you mean to say, said Hermione in a hushed voice, that the little girls whose scales are repaired? Yes, of course, said Harry loudly, staring at her. Of course, Malfoy must have been hiding inside the room the whole time. So she, what am I talking about? He dropped the scales to tell Malfoy not to come out because there was someone there. And then there was that girl who dropped the toad spawn too. We've been walking past him all this time and not realizing it. He's got Crab and Goyle transforming into girls, golfed around, blimey. No wonder they don't look too happy these days. Well, I'm surprised they don't tell him to snuff it. Well, they wouldn't, would they? If he's shown them his dark mark, said Harry. Mm, the dark mark we don't know exists, said Hermione skeptically, rolling up Ron's dried essay before it could come any more harm in handing it to him. We'll see, said, Herm said Harry confidently. Yes, we will, Hermione said, getting to her feet and stretching. But Harry, before we get all excited... I still don't think you'll be able to get into the room requirement without knowing what's there first. And I don't think you should forget, she heaved her bag onto her shoulder and gave him a very serious look, that what you're supposed to be doing is concentrating on getting that memory from Slughorn. Good night. And then I've got three more pages and I'm going to turn it over to Chase to take us through the chapter. On page 457, I'm going to read from the top of this page to 461 here. "'Yes,' said Hermione, causing both Harry and Ron to gag on their breakfast. "'But it's all right. He's not dead. It's Mundungus. "'He's been arrested and sent to Azkaban, "'something to do with impersonating an inferior "'during an attempted burglary. "'And someone called Octavius Pepper has vanished. "'Oh, and how horrible. "'A nine-year-old boy has been arrested "'for trying to kill his grandparents. "'They think he was under the Imperius curse.' "'They finished their breakfast in silence. "'Hermione set off immediately for ancient ruins. "'Ron, for the common room.' where he still had to finish his conclusion on Snape's Dementor essay, and Harry for the corridor on the seventh floor in the stretch of wall opposite the tapestry of Barnabas the Barbie teaching trolls to do the ballet. Harry slipped on his invisibility cloak once he had found an empty passage, but he need not have bothered. When he reached his destination, he found it deserted, and Harry was not sure whether his chances of getting inside the room were better with Malfoy inside it or out, but at least his first attempt was not going to be complicated by the presence of Crabbe and Goyle pretending to be an 11-year-old girl. He closed his eyes, approached the place where the room requirements door was concealed. He knew exactly what he had to do. He had become most accomplished at it last year. Concentrating with all his might, he thought, I need to see what Malfoy is doing in here. I need to see what Malfoy is doing in here. 
I need to see what Malfoy is doing in here. Three times he walked past the door, then, his heart pounding with excitement, he opened his eyes and faced it. But he was still looking at a stretch of mundanely blank wall. He moved forward and gave it an experimental push. <clears throat> the stone remained solid and unyielding. Okay, said Harry Lott. Okay, I thought the wrong thing. He pondered for a moment, then set off again, eyes closed, concentrating as hard as he could. I need to see the place where Malfoy keeps coming secretly. I need to see the place where Malfoy keeps coming secretly. After three walks past, he opened his eyes expectantly. There was no door. Oh, come off it, he told the wall irritably. That was a clear instruction. Fine. He thought hard for several minutes before striding off once more. I need you to become the place you become for Draco Malfoy. He did not immediately open his eyes when he had finished his patrolling. He was listening hard as though he might hear the door pop into existence. He heard nothing, however, except the distant twittering of birds outside. He opened his eyes and there was still no door. Harry swore. Someone screamed. He looked around to see a gaggle of first years running back around the corner, apparently under the impression that they had just encountered a particularly foul-mouthed ghost. Harry tried every vari variation of I need to see what Draco Malfoy is doing inside you that he could think of for a whole hour, at the end of which he was forced to concede that Hermione might have had a point. The room simply did not want to open for him. Frustrated and annoyed, he had set off for defense against the dark arts, pulling off his invisibility cloak, stuffing it into his bag as he went. Late again, Potter, said Snape coldly as he hurried into the candlelit classroom. Ten points from Gryffindor. Harry scowled at Snape as he flung himself into the seat beside Ron. Half the class was still on his feet, taking out books and organizing things. He couldn't have been much later than any of them. Before we start, I want your Dementor essays, said Snape, waving his wand carelessly so that 25 scrolls of parchment soared into the air and landed in a neat pile on his desk. And I hope for your sakes they are better than the tripe I had to endure on resisting the Imperious Curse. Now, if you will open all of your books to page... What is it, Mr. Finnegan? Sir, said Seamus, I've been wondering, how do you tell the difference between an Inferius and a ghost? Because there was something in the paper about an Inferius. No, there wasn't, said Snape in a bored voice. But, sir, I heard people talking. If you had actually read the article in question, Mr. Finnegan, you would have known that the so-called Inferius was nothing but a smelly sneak thief by the name of Mundungus Fletcher. I thought Snape and Mundungus were on the same side, muttered Harry to Ron and Hermione. Shouldn't he be upset that Mundungus has been arrested? But Potter seems to have a lot to say on the subject, said Snape, pointing suddenly at the back of the room, his eyes gleaming fixed on Harry. Let us ask Potter how we would tell the difference between an Inferius and a ghost. The whole class looked around at Harry, who hastily tried to recall what Dumbledore had told him the night they had gone to visit Slughorn. Uh, well, ghosts are transparent, he said. Very good, he interrupted Snape, his lip curling. Yes, it's easy to see that nearly six years of magical education have not been wasted on you, Potter. Ghosts are transparent. <laughs> Pansy Parkinson let out a high-pitched giggle. Several other people were smirking, and Harry took a deep breath and continued calmly. Those insides are boiling. Yeah, ghosts are transparent. But in theory are dead bodies, aren't they? So they'd be solid. A five-year-old could have told us as much, seared Snape. An Inferius is a corpse that has been reanimated by a dark wizard spells. It is not alive, it is merely used like a puppet to do the wizard's bidding. A ghost, as I trust that you are all aware by now, is the imprint of a departed soul left upon the earth, and of course, as Potter so wisely tells us, transparent. Well, what Harry said is most useful if we're trying to tell them apart, said Ron. When we come face to face with one down a dark alley, we're going to be having... Uh, Shufty to see if it's solid, aren't we? We're not going to be asking, excuse me, are you the imprint of a departed soul? 
There was a ripple of laughter and instantly quelled by the look of Snape gave the class. Another ten points from Gryffindor, said Snape, and I would expect nothing more sophisticated from you, Ronald Weasley. The boy so solid he cannot apparate half an inch across the room. No, whispered Hermione, grabbing Harry's arm. <coughs> he opened his mouth furiously. There's no point. You're just not up in the tension. Leave it. Now, open your books to page 213, said Snape, smirking a little, and read the first two paragraphs on the Cruciatus Curse. And Ron was very subdued all through the class, and while the bell rang and it sounded at the end of the lesson, Lavender caught up with Ron and Harry, and Hermione mysteriously melted out of sight as she approached and abused Snape hotly for his jibe about Ron's apparition. But this seemed to merely irritate Ron, and he shook her off by making a detour into the boys' bathroom with Harry. Awesome stuff. Now, on page 461, I'm going to read the last sentence here. <clears throat> oh, last sentence of the fourth paragraph, I should say. Myrtle, this is the boys' bathroom. The ghost of a girl had risen out of the toilet in a cubicle behind them and was now floating in midair, staring at them through the thick white round glass. Oh, it's you two. Who were you expecting, said Ron, looking at her in the mirror. Nobody, said Myrtle, picking moodily at a spot on her chin. He said he'd come back and see me, but then you said you'd pop in and visit me too. She gave Harry a reproachful look. And I haven't seen you for months and months. I've learned not to expect much from boys. I thought you lived in that girl's bathroom, said Harry, who had been careful to give that place a wide berth for some years now. I do, she said with a sulky little shrug. But that doesn't mean I can't visit other places. I came and saw you in your bath once, remember? Vividly. But I thought he liked me, he said, she said plaintively. Maybe if you two had left, he'd come back again. We had lots in common. I'm sure he felt it. And when she looked hopefully towards the door, When you say he had lots in common, said Ron, sounding rather amused. Do you mean he lives in an S-Ben too? No, said Myrtle defiantly, her voice echoing loudly through the oil-tilled bathroom. I mean, he's sensitive. People bully him too. And he feels lonely. He hasn't got anybody to talk to. And he's not afraid to show his feelings and cry. There's been a boy in here crying? said Harry curiously. A young boy? Never you mind, said Myrtle, her small leaky eyes fixed on Ron, who was now definitely grinning. I promised I wouldn't tell anyone. I'll take a secret to the... Not the grave, surely, said Ron with a snort. The sewers, maybe. And Myrtle gave a howl of rage and dived back into the toilet, causing water to slap over the sides onto the floor. And goading Myrtle seemed to have put Ron into a fresh heart. And that's where I'll go ahead and let Chase kind of take over from there. But... I thought that this was kind of crazy that uh, Ron still, even to ghosts, doesn't know what to say at any point in time. He's just constantly saying the wrong things to the wrong people, making people feel bad. So, classic Ron. But those, I think those were pretty important <laughs> stuff to, uh, to get our way through. So, uh, what I had here is, like, just to give it to you, Chase, I had you starting on page 464. Is that where you're kind of looking at here to take it through the rest of the chapter? Yeah, I mean, I can just hit these as bullet points. Like, I didn't think it was... I mean, you can we can read them if we wanted to, but they're really... I didn't find a reason to really read them. Um, but basically, from that point was right after where you're at Myrtle, and then uh, did you talk about the part where he, like, attempted to at least kind of talk to Slughorn, but he basically was really avoiding him. No, um, I, that was kind of like the first and second kind of time because it plays a big part later on um, with how he's taking his chances here. Um, so that was on 463 in the middle where, uh, you know, Slughorn basically is avoiding 
Harry again when he keeps trying to get him back to stay after class to talk to him. So eventually he can get that memory. Uh, and then if you go to page 464 to 465, kind of in the middle, this was a big one was, yeah. remember, Harry keeps trying to get into the room of requirement. And uh, just to read that just for a second there. Um, so this is right in the middle here. I'll read this little section. Um, so it said, so, well, I'll just read this page real quick. So as it was Sunday morning, nearly all students were inside their various common rooms. The Gryffindors in one tower, the Ravenclaws in the other, the Slytherins in the dungeons, and the Hufflepuffs in the basement near the kitchens. Here and there, a stray person meandered around the library or up a corridor. There were a few people out in the grounds, and there alone in the seventh corridor was Gregory Goyle. There was no sign of the room and requirement, but Harry was not worried about that. If Goyle was standing guard outside, it was the room was open, whether the map was aware of it or not. He therefore sprinted up the stairs, slowing down only when he reached the corner into the corridor, when he began to creep very slowly toward the very same little girl, clutching her heavy brass scales that Hermione had so kindly helped end up fortnight before. He waited until he was right behind her, uh, before bending very low and whispering, Hello, you're very pretty, aren't you? Goyle gave a high-pitched scream of terror, threw the scales up into the air, sprinted away, vanishing them sight long before the sound of scales smashing had stopped echoing around the corridor. Laughing, Harry turned to contemplate the blank wall behind which he was sure Draco Malfoy was now standing frozen, aware that someone unwelcome was out there. But not daring to make an appearance, it gave Harry a most agreeable feeling of power, as he tried to remember what form of words he had not yet tried. Yet this hopeful move did not last long. Half an hour later, having tried many more variations of his request to see what Malfoy was up to, the wall was just as doorless as ever. Harry felt frustrated, beyond belief. Malfoy might be just a feet away from him, and there was still not the teeniest shred of evidence uh, as to what he was doing in there. Losing his patience completely, Harry ran at the wall and kicked it. Ouch! He thought he might have broken his toe and clutched it and hopped on one foot. The invisibility cloak slipped off of him. Harry! He spun around one leg and toppled over. There to his utter astonishment was Tonks, walking toward him as though frequent strolled up in the corridor. What are you doing here? He said, scrambling to his feet again. Why did she always have to find him lying on the floor? I came to see Dumbledore, said Tonks. Harry thought she looked terrible, thinner than usual, her mouse-colored hair lank. His office isn't here, said Harry. It's round the other side of the castle beyond the, behind the gargoyle. I know, said Tonks. He's not there. Apparently, he's gone away again. Has he? said Harry, putting his bruised foot gingerly back on the floor. Hey! You don't know where he goes, I suppose. No, said Tonks. What do you want to see him about? Nothing in particular, said Tonks, picking apparently unconsciously at the sleeve of her robe. I just thought he might know what's going on. I've heard rumors, people getting hurt. Yeah, I, I know it's all been in the papers, said Harry. That's little kid trying to kill his... The prophet's often behind the times, said Tonks, who didn't seem to be listening to him. You haven't had any letters from anyone in the order recently no one from the order writes me any writes me anymore said harry not since serious 
He saw that her eyes filled with tears. I'm sorry, he muttered awkwardly. I mean, I miss him as well. What? said Tonks blankly, as though she had not heard him. Well, I'll see you around, Harry. So this plays two big points here. So one, we're getting a little bit of an insight uh, based on, you know, Hermione going up to Goyle um, that it's most likely Polyjuice Potion, and it confirms that result. And, uh, of course, Harry can't get in the room of requirement, which is a big surprise because he was so used to it back in when he was with the DA. So, of course, it brings a lot of frustration. But Tonks, remember going back, kind of a big full circle moment here. Even her Patronus had changed. So this plays a point later on that we won't bring up yet. Um, but a lot of speculation there as why Sirius's death has really affected her so bad like she's even looking like a different person um one thing just before i get forget i wanted to mention just uh when you were talking about dobby and creature um i brushed over this when i mentioned it in chapter 19 but just what's really cool about all these chapters that are uh, is amazing about this book is like the tiny little details that play mention later on uh i just wanted to mention this one just so we didn't forget to highlight it um, and I won't say anything else about it, but it just says, remember, I read it. It says, and if Dobby does it wrong, Dobby will throw himself off the topmost tower, Harry Potter. So, I mean, I just thought that was kind of a big one there. So I just wanted to mention that. And, uh, what's cool, um, and, uh, we'll mention it just briefly, very briefly, but like the very little details that play such a big role later on. Even the last chapter that we'll cover today, it even talks about something that's in that room <laughs> that he goes, that's on the shelf. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to, I just think it's so cool that all the detail is so in here like that. Um, but from this point, you know, being efficient, we can kind of just uh, roll through that. So 466, um, this is when, you know, uh, this is kind of right where I left off here, but ron starts telling this is at the bottom but ron was telling harry he finally apparated and I remember he was saying he wound up in an entirely different location but he still wound up doing it so i guess we got to give ron a little bit of credit here like i kind of felt bad for him you know hermione has basically crushed it finally and uh you know he wound up all the way at the end of like screven shafts which is a long ways away um and then from here you know, uh, I have that, uh, they go to, well, this is back when, you know, this is really still on page 466 and kind of just the middle here. Um, it just says, uh, he and Ron and Hermione in the great hall, um, basically had lunch and they were just catching up over, you know, apparating. Um, whereas Ron, before Hermione can, Hermione can answer, they're just going back over that whole perfect deliberation, deviation, and desperation, or whatever the hell it is. So it just reiterates, you know, even though Ron's kind of a little bit figured it out, he still really hasn't figured it out, which I wanted to bring that up just briefly because it plays a big part later on where you were saying, I wouldn't feel too bad, Harry. <laughs> You're not going to be by yourself. <laughs> Uh, shaking my head um and then uh so on page 467 i'll read this 
I'll kind of take this to the end of the chapter right here. Um, but Hermione is kind of starting us off here, uh, just saying, you know, as far as Dumbledore, like, abandoning his post, like, things are just a little bit odd that's going on. So I'll take that from there. Um, so I'll start where it says, yeah, she said, uh, come to visit. Well, that's right where I ended. So I'll say it's a bit <clears throat> odd, said Hermione. Yeah. Do you see that I was part? Gonna say, I was going to say, you should probably take it from the top so you guys know what you're talking about. Because it's talking about Tonks. Because that's where Harry says, like, guess what I found up there? It was Tonks. So I would actually take it from the top yeah. of that page of 467, right. gotcha. honestly. Yeah. yeah, I just didn't want to re-mention something because I know I just said Tonks. So I didn't no. want to like, go back over no, that. No, this is actually, because there's actually to. something important in this little page that is important to point out as a, as mm-hmm. a potential theory on why Tonks is acting the way she's acting. So it's definitely worth reading it from the top of the page to the end of the chapter, yeah. for sure. So, uh, okay, so going from the top of the page here, and what about you, asked Hermione, ignoring Ron? Have you been up at the room of requirement all this time? Uh, yep, said Harry. And guess who I ran into up there? Tonks. Tonks? Repeated Ron and Hermione together, looking surprised. Yeah, she said she'd come to visit Dumbledore. If you ask me, said Ron, once Harry had finished describing his conversation with Tonks, she's cracking up a bit, losing her nerve after what happened at the ministry. It's a bit odd, said Hermione, who for some reason looked very concerned. She's supposed to be guarding the school. Why is she suddenly abandoning her post to come and see Dumbledore when he's not even here? I had thought, said Harry tentatively. He felt as strange about voicing it. This was much more Hermione's territory than his. You don't think she can have been, you know, in love with Sirius? Hermione stared at him. What on earth makes you say that? I don't know, said Harry, shrugging. But she was nearly crying when I mentioned his name, and her Patronus is a big four-legged thing now. I wondered whether it hadn't come, you know, him... It's a thought, said Hermione slowly, but I still don't know why she'd be bursting into the castle to see Dumbledore if that's really why she was here. Goes back to what I said, doesn't it? Said Ron, who is now shoveling mashed potatoes into his mouth. She's gone a bit funny. Uh, Lost her nerve. Women. Ugh. He said wisely to Harry, they're easily upset. And yet, said Hermione, coming out of her reverie, I doubt you'd find a woman who sulked for half an hour because Madame Rosemirta didn't laugh at their joke about the hag, the healer, and the mimbleless Mimbletonia, Ron scowled. <laughs> um, so it just reiterates that fact that, uh, I mean, clearly she's still upset about what happened and feels like really but the like- whole thing's her fault. That's what we're supposed. To, that's what we're led to believe right now. Us who have read the books right. know that's actually what the real case is. But I thought it was really interesting that that's the new theory. Is that hey, maybe Tonks was mm-hmm. actually in love with Sirius, and maybe that his her Patronus had become him. It's a theory that they have, but we'll figure out the truth later on. But it's yeah. something that it was definitely worth notating there as to kind of trying to throw some misdirection as you as a reader. Like now, this is mm-hmm. another thought in your mind because. Remember, Tonks and Sirius are actually distant cousins. Like they're they're like second mm-hmm. cousins. So it's kind of like a weird, a weird little um, John <laughs> thing Danny, there. Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah. With that, I'll, I'll turn it back over to you. I just didn't think like I think that chapter is important, 
But with some of the ones we have to read in detail, there is definitely ones like in there. I feel like that's the one we just did there is good to hit bullet points on because there's just so many detailed chapters we covered today that we have to hit word for word. That that one is one where it's important, but at the same time, how important is it that Ron really didn't learn <laughs> anything about apparition? <laughs> it's important. It's important Any, when he realized yeah. the results of his test, and it's also important in this uh, number as well as when Dobby and Creature give their report to Harry, and then them figuring yeah. out that Malfoy is actually using Crab and Goyle with the Polyjuice Potion, and how he's been using the uh, Room of Requirement. That's like actually a really important chapter. Like, and then we hear about the differences between Inferious and Ghost because we hear Inferious again from Snape. Like, there's a lot of things on there that actually were, were pretty solidly that come up later on that were definitely worth going over. But um, yeah, let, let's definitely move into the next chapter here in chapter 22 after the burial. And I like these illustrations, man. If you, if you guys look mm-hmm. at chapter 22, the illustration, you see Aragog kind of upside down, dead with like the curled like things up. And so. Yeah. I know I kind of almost ruined it a little bit for everyone right there when I said Aragog's dead, but it happens on the second page. So I'll just go through bullet points until, like, the end of chapter thing. And it's only about seven pages before of bullet points before I give it to Chase to finish out the chapter. But in page 469, Ron and Hermione, they take their apparition test today. Uh, but before they leave for their, their test, uh, they actually get a note from Hagrid. And I'll go ahead and read Hagrid's letter. It says, Dear Harry, Ron, and Hermione, Aragog died last night. Harry and Ron, you met him, and you know how special he was. Hermione, I know you'd have liked him. It would mean a lot to me if you'd nip down for the burial later this evening. I'm planning on doing it around dusk. That was his favorite time of day. I know you're not supposed to be out that late, but you can use the cloak. I wouldn't ask, but I can't face it alone. Hagrid. So, uh, that that's, that's going to come up big, too. Not only because Aragog died and it's Hagrid asking to do something, but... What ends up happening when they, you know, when this whole thing takes place is is very very important to the storyline. Now, on page four seventy one, I want to go ahead and, and read from here where it says, "Yes, he will," said Hermione, looking relieved. "Look, potions will almost be empty this afternoon, and we'll be off doing our tests. Try and soften Slughorn up a bit." Fifty seventh time, lucky you think," said Harry bitterly. "Lucky," said Ron suddenly. "Harry, that's it. Get lucky." "What do you mean?" Use your lucky potion. Ron, that's... That's it, said Hermione, sounding stunned. Of course. Why didn't I think of it? Harry stared at them both. Felix Felix's? He said, I don't know. I was sort of saving it. What for? demanded Ron incredulously. What on earth is more important than this memory, Harry? Harry did not answer. The thought of that little golden bottle had hovered on the edges of his imagination for some time. Vague and unformulated plans that involved Ginny splitting up with Dean and Ron somehow being happy to see her with a new boyfriend had been fermenting in the depths of his brain unacknowledged except during dreams or in the twilight time between sleeping and waking. Harry, are you still with us? asked Hermione. What? Yeah, of course, said pulling himself together. Well, okay. If I can't get Slughorn to talk this afternoon, I'll take some Felix and have another go this evening. That's decided then, said Hermione briskly getting to her feet and performing a graceful pirouette. Destination, determination, deliberation, she murmured. Oh, stop that, Ron begged her. I feel sick enough as it is. Quick, hide me. It isn't lavender, said Hermione impatiently, as another couple of girls appeared in the courtyard and Ron died behind her. Cool, said Ron, appearing over Hermione's shoulder to check. Blimey, they don't look happy, do they? 
They're the Montgomery sisters, and of course they don't look happy. Didn't you hear what happened to their little brother? Said Hermione. I'm losing track of what's happening to everyone's relatives, to be honest, said Ron. Well, their brother was attacked by a werewolf. The rumor is that their mother refused to help the Death Eaters, and anyway, the boy was only five, and he died in St. Mungo's. They couldn't save him. He died? Repeated Harry, shocked, but surely werewolves don't kill, they just turn you into one of them. They sometimes kill, said Ron, who looked unusually grave. I've heard of it happening when the werewolf gets carried away. What was the werewolf's name? Said Harry quickly. Well, rumor was that it was that friend your grayback, said Hermione. I knew it! The maniac who likes attacking kids, the one Lupin told me about, said Harry angrily. Hermione looked at him bleakly. Harry, you've got to get that memory, she said. It's all about stopping Voldemort, isn't it? These dreadful things are happening, are all down to him. And that's where... I'll stop for a quick second to talk about what we just learned there. Number one, let's give Ron a shout-out. He had a good idea for once in his whole life about the Felix Felicis <laughs> potion to take that. So we're going to give our claps to Ron. Congratulations, Ron. You're not completely useless. Uh, but just on top of that, too, it's not only about uh, that. Now we're seeing people's parents and like family members and stuff. Not the disappearances so much, but now it's even down to five-year-old kids. Like, <clears throat> Defender Grayback just right. attacked and killed this five-year-old kid who is the younger brother of the two sisters there. And so, you know, that's why Hermione even said, she said she looked bleakly, like, Harry, you've got to get that memory. That's what it's all about, stopping Voldemort. Like, not your stupid childish dreams of Ginny in your head and Ron being happy. Like, there's people dying. Take your damn potion and let's get get going and figure out the memory so we can <laughs> stop this guy. Um, and then on page 474, I just wanted to read the the paragraph here where it's it says, what is his imagination? It's just a small paragraph. It says, Was it his imagination, or did Malfoy, like Tonks, look thinner? Certainly he looked paler. His skin still had that grayish tinge, probably because he so rarely saw daylight these days, but there was no air of smugness, excitement, or superiority. None of the swagger that he had on the Hogwarts Express when he had boasted openly of the mission he had been given by by Voldemort. There could only be one conclusion. In Harry's opinion, the mission, whatever it was, was going badly. That's huge, big foreshadow, and also just important in and of itself for the storyline. And then on page 475, Hermione passed her apparition test. Page 476, Ron failed his apparition test by half an eyebrow, which is really sad. Like, literally half an (laughs) eyebrow. So I wonder, you know what's funny? It's probably because he's ginger that he got caught. Imagine if, like, you know, you might not have noticed if it was blonde, if he was blonde, you know. But since he's a ginger, that that little half eyebrow probably stuck out. For yeah, sure. man, I would have just like shaved him off and shaved my head. That's right. To, like play it off. <laughs> That's right. And then 476, Harry plans to take just a mouthful of Felix Felicis, two to three hours worth to get Slughorn's memory because he still wants more for later on because he still thinks that two or three hours will be enough to do that. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to Chase for here on page 476 after I uh, after we just talked about how he's only going to take two to three hours. So. I'll turn it over to you, brother. You can take it from, you know, it's a great feeling when you take it or when you think you take it from Ron and you can just finish out the chapter, my man. Yeah, sounds good, man. Um, so as far as uh, 470, really, I, I would take it really in the middle of 477 is kind of where I was going to start cool. there, which is um, Harry uh, takes the Felix, Felix's, uh, which is what they were talking about, you know, Harry using because Ron finally had an idea once in his life even though basically (laughs) everyone gave him a hint with the luck (laughs) like just throwing that out there um so kind of in the in the middle here so uh i'll say 
So let's start. But where he says, "Well, we here got... it goes," when he takes it right there, the one like the third paragraph. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. Well, here it goes," said Harry, and he raised the little bottle and took carefully measured gulp. What does it feel like? Whispered Hermione. Harry did not answer for a moment. Then slowly but surely, an exhilarating sense of infinite opportunity stole through him. He felt as though he could have done anything, anything at all. And getting the memory from Slughorn seemed suddenly not only possible, but positively easy. I almost thought of this, by the way, just stopping for a moment. Almost like when you've been drinking and like you're on top of your game that night. Like you can do anything. I'm invincible. <laughs> no one's stopping me. I just got a good feeling about this, guys. Just go with it. Yeah, man. Uh, so uh, then from this point... He got to his feet, smiling, brimming with confidence. Excellent, he said. Really excellent. Right, I'm going. Down to Hagrid's. <laughs> what? Said Ron and Hermione together, looking aghast. No, Harry, you got to go and see Slughorn, remember? Said Hermione. No, said Harry confidently. I'm going to Hagrid's. I've got a good feeling about going to Hagrid's. You got a good feeling about burying a giant spider? Asked Ron, looking stunned. Yeah, said Harry, pulling his invisibility cloak out of his bag. I feel like it's the place to be tonight, you know? What I mean? <laughs> no, said Ron <laughs> and Hermione together, both looking positively alarmed now. This is Felix Felicis, I suppose, said Hermione anxiously, holding up the bottle to his light. You haven't got another little bottle full of, uh, I don't know. Essence of insanity, suggested Ron, as Harry swung his cloak over his shoulders. Harry laughed, and Ron and Hermione looked even more alarmed. Trust me, he said, I know what I'm doing. Or at least he strolled confidently to the door. Felix does. He pulled the invisibility cloak over his head and set off down the stairs. Ron and Hermione hurrying along behind him at the foot of the stairs, Harry slid through the open door. What were you doing up there with her? <laughs> Shrieked Lavender Brown, staring right through Harry at Ron and Hermione emerging together from the boys' dormitories. Harry heard Ron sputtering behind him as he darted across the room away from them. Getting through the portrait hole was simple. As he approached it, Ginny and Dean came through it, and Harry was able to slip between them. As he did so, he brushed accidentally against Ginny. Don't push me, please, Dean! She said, sounding annoyed. You're always doing that. I can get through perfectly well on my own. The portrait swung closed behind Harry, but not before he had heard Dean make an angry retort. His feeling of elation increasing, Harry strode off through the castle. He did not have to creep along, for he met nobody on his way, but this did not surprise him in the slightest. This evening, he was the luckiest person at Hogwarts. Why? He knew that going to Hagrid's was the right thing to do. He had no idea. <laughs> it was as though the potion was illuminating a few steps of the path at the time. He could not see the final destination. He could not see where Slughorn came in. But he knew that he was going the right way to get that memory. When he reached the entrance hall, he saw that Filch had forgotten to lock the front door. Beaming, Harry threw it open and breathed in the smell of clean air and grass for a moment before walking down the steps into the dusk. It was when he reached the bottom step that it occurred to him how very pleasant it would be to pass the vegetable patch on the walk to Hagrid's. It was not strictly on the way, but it seemed clear to Harry that this was a whim on which he should act.
<laughs> so he directed his feet immediately toward the vegetable patch, where he was pleased, but not altogether surprised, to find Professor Slughorn in convention with Professor Sprout. Harry looked behind a low stone wall, feeling at peace with the world and listening to their conversation. I do thank you for taking the time, Monoma, Slughorn was saying courteously. Most authorities agree that they are at their most efficacious if pickled at twilight. Oh, I quite agree, said Professor Sprout warmly. That enough for you? Plenty, plenty, said Slughorn, who Harry saw was carrying an armful of leafy plants. This should allow for a few leaves for each of my third years, and some to spare for anybody over stews, stews them. Well, good evening to you, and many thanks again. Professor Sprout headed off and into the gathering darkness in the direction of your greenhouses, and Slughorn directed his steps to the spot where Harry stood, invisible. Seized with an immediate desire to reveal himself, Harry pulled off the cloak with a flourish. Good evening, Professor! Merlin's beard! <laughs> Harry, you made me jump, said Slughorn, stopping dead in his tracks and looking wary. How did you get out of the castle? I think Filch must have forgotten to lock the doors, said Harry, cheerfully and was delighted to see Slughorn scowl. I'll be reporting that man. He's more concerned about litter than proper security, if you ask me. But why are you out here, Harry? Well, sir, it's Hagrid, said Harry, who knew that the right thing to do just now was to tell the truth. He's pretty upset. But you won't tell anyone, Professor. I don't want trouble for him. Slughorn's curiosity was evidently aroused. Well, I can't promise that, he said gruffly, but I know that Dumbledore trusts Hagrid to the hilt, so I'm sure he can't be up to anything very dreadful. Well, it's this giant spider. He's had it for years. It lived in the forest. It could talk and everything. I heard rumors there were acromantulas in the forest, said Slughorn softly, looking over at the mass of black trees. It's true, then? Yes, said Harry, but this one, Aragog, the first one Hagrid ever got, it died last night. He's devastated. He wants company while he buries it, so I said I'd go. Touching, touching, said Slughorn absentmindedly, his large droopy eyes fixed upon the distant light, lights of Hagrid's cabin. But acromantula venom is very valuable. If the beast only just died... It might not yet have dried out. Of course, I would want to do anything intensive if Hagrid is upset, but insensitive if Hagrid is upset, but if there was any way to procure some, I mean, it's not almost impossible to get venom from an acromantula while it's alive, but Slughorn seemed to be talking more to himself than Harry now. Seems an awful waste not to collect it. Might get a hundred galleons a pint. To be frank, my salary's not large. And now Harry saw clearly what must be done, what was to be done. Well, he said, with the most convincing hesitancy. Well, if you wanted to come, Professor, Hagrid would probably be really pleased. Give Aragog a better send-off, you know? Yes, of course, said Slughorn, his eyes now gleaming with enthusiasm. I'll tell you what. Harry... I'll meet you down there with a bottle or two. We'll drink. The poor beast, well, not health. But we'll send it off in style anyways, once it's buried, and I'll change my tie. This one is a little exuberant for the occasion. 
He bustled back to the castle, and Harry sped off to Hagrid's, delighted with himself. "'You came,' croaked Hagrid, when he opened the door and saw Harry emerging from the invisibility cloak in front of him. "'Yeah, Ron and Hermione, Hermione couldn't know,' said Harry. "'They're really sorry.' "'Doesn't done matter. It'd have uh, been touched you're here, though, Harry.' Hagrid gave a great sob. He had made himself a black armband out of what looked like a rag dipped in boot polish, and his eyes were puffy red and swollen. Harry patted him consolingly on the elbow, which was the highest point of Hagrid he could easily reach. "'Where are we burying him?' he asked. "'The forest?' "'Blimey, no,' said Hagrid, wiping his streaming eyes off the bottom of his shirt. "'The other on the bottom of his shirt.' The other spiders won't let me anywhere near their webs now Aragog's gone. Turns out, it was only on his orders. They didn't eat me. Can you believe that, Harry? The honest answer was yes. Harry recalled with painful ease the scene when he and Ron had come face to face with the Acromantulas. They had been quite clear that Aragog was the only thing that stopped him, them from eating Hagrid. Never been in the area of the forest I couldn't go before said Hagrid, shaking his head. It wasn't easy getting Aragog's body out of there. I can tell you, they usually eat their dead, see? But I wanted to give him nice burial, a proper send-off. Uh, he broke into sobs again. Harry resumed the patting of his elbow, saying as he did, for the potion seemed to indicate that it was the right thing to do. Professor Slughorn met me coming down here, Hagrid. Not in trouble, are you? said Hagrid, looking up alarmed. It shouldn't be out of the castle in the evening. I know it. It's my fault. No, no. When he heard what I was doing, he said, he'd like to come pay. His last respects to Aragog, too, said Harry. He's gone to change into something more suitable, I think. And he said he'd bring some bottles so we can drink to Aragog's memory. Did he? said Hagrid, looking both astonished and touched. That's that's right nice of him. That is uh, not turning you in either. I've never really had a lot to do with Horse Slughorn before. Coming to see a old Aragog off, though, eh? Well, you'd have liked that, Aragog would. Harry thought privately that what Aragog would have liked most about Slughorn was the ample amount of edible flesh he provided, <laughs> but he merely moved <laughs> to the rear window of Haggard's hut where he saw the rather horrible sight of the enormous dead spider lying on its back, its legs curled and tangled. Are we going to bury him here, Hagrid, in your garden? Just beyond that pumpkin patch, I thought, said Hagrid in a choked voice. I've already dug the, yeah, you know, grave. Just thought we'd say a few nice things over him. Happy memories, you know? His voice quivered and broke. There was a knock on the door. He turned to answer it, blowing his nose on his great spotted handkerchief as he did so. Slughorn hurried over the threshold, several bottles in his arms, and wearing a somber black cravat. Hagrid, he said in a deep, grave voice, so very sorry to hear of your loss. That's very nice of you, said Hagrid. Thanks a lot, and thanks for not giving Harry detention either. Wouldn't have dreamed of it, said Slughorn. Sad night, sad night. Where is the poor creature? Out here, said Hagrid in a shaking voice. Shall we? Shall we do it then? The three men of them 
stepped out into the back garden. The moon was glistening, palely through the trees now, and its rays mingled with the light spelling from Haggard's window to illuminate Aragog's body lying on the edge of massive pit beside a ten-foot-high mound of freshly dug earth. Magnificent, said Slughorn, approaching the spider's head, where eight milky eyes stared blankly at the sky and two huge curved pincers shone motionless in the moonlight. He thought he heard the tinkle of bottles as Slughorn bent over the pincers, apparently examining the enormous hairy head. It's not everyone appreciates how beautiful they are, said Haggard to Slughorn's back, tears licking from the corners of his crinkled eyes. I didn't know you were interested in creatures like Aragog Horse. Interested? My dear, I revere them, said Slughorn, stepping back from the body. Here he saw the glint of the bottle disappear beneath his cloak, though Hagrid, mopping his eyes once more, noticed nothing. Now, shall we proceed to the burial? Hagrid nodded and moved forward. He heaved the gigantic spider into his arms and, with an enormous grunt, rolled it into the dark pit. It hit the bottom with a rather horrible, crunchy thud. Hagrid started to cry again. Of course it's difficult for you. He knew him best, said Slughorn, who, like Harry, could reach no higher than Hagrid's elbow, but patted it all the same. Why don't I say a few words? He must have got a lot of good quality venom from Aragog, Harry thought, for Slughorn wore a satisfied smirk as he stepped up to the rim of the pit and said in a slow, impressive voice, Farewell, Aragog, king of arachnids whose long and faithful friendship, those who knew, you won't forget. Through your body will decay. Your spirit lingers on in the quiet, web-spung places of your forest home. May your many-eyed descendants ever flourish, and your human friends find solace for the loss they have sustained. That was... That was beautiful, howled Hagrid, and he collapsed onto the cupmost heap, crying harder than ever. There, there, said Slughorn, waving his wand so that the huge pile of earth rose up and then fell with a muffled sort of crash onto the dead spider, forming a smooth mound. Let's get inside and have a drink. Get on the other side, Harry. That's it. Up you come, Hagrid. Well done. They deposited Hagrid in a chair at the table. Fang, who had been skulking in his basket during the burial, now came padding softly across to them and put his heavy head into Harry's lap as usual. Slughorn uncorked one of the bottles of wine he had brought. I have had it all tested for poison, he assured Harry, pouring most of the first bottle into Hagrid's bucket-sized mugs and handing it to Hagrid. Had a house elf taste every bottle after what <laughs> happened to your poor friend Rupert. Harry saw in his mind's eye the expression on Hermione's face. Has she ever heard about the abuse of house elves and decided never to mention it to her? One for Harry, said Slughorn, dividing a second bottle between two mugs. And one for me. Well, he raised his mug high. To Aragog, said Harry and Hagrid together. Both Slughorn and Hagrid drank deeply. Harry, however, with the way ahead illuminated for him by Felix Felix's, knew that he must not drink, so he merely pretended to take a gulp and then set the mug back on the table before him. I had him from an egg, you know, 
said Hagrid morosely. Tiny little thing. He was, when he hatched, about the size of a Perkinsies. Sweet, said Slughorn. Used to keep him in a cupboard up at the school until, well, Hagrid's face darkened and Harry knew why. Tom Riddle had contrived to have Hagrid thrown out of school, blamed for opening the Chamber of Secrets. Slughorn, however, did not seem to be listening. He was looking up at the ceiling, for which a number of brass pots hung, and also a long, silky skein of great white hair. That's never unicorn hair, Hagrid. Oh, yeah, said Hagrid indifferently. Gets pulled out of their tails. They catch it on branches and stuff in the forest, you know? But my dear chap, do you know how much that's worth? I use it for binding on bandages and stuff. If a creature gets injured, said Hagrid, shrugging, it's dead useful, very strong, see? Slughorn took another deep drought from his mug, his eyes moving carefully around the cabin now, looking... Harry knew for more treasures that he might be able to convert into a plentiful supply of oak-matured mead, crystallized pineapple, and velvet-smoking jackets. He refilled Hagrid's mug and his own and questioned him about the creatures that lived in the forest these days, how Hagrid was able to look after them all. Hagrid became Hagrid becoming expansive under the influence of the drink and Slughorn's flattering interest. Stopped mopping his eyes and entered happily into a long explanation of bow-truckle husbandry. The Felix Felices gave Harry a little nudge at this point, and he noticed that the supply of the drink that Slughorn had brought was running out fast. Harry had not yet managed to bring off the refilling charm without saying the incantation aloud, but the idea that he might not be able to do it tonight was laughable. Indeed, Harry grinned to himself as unnoticed by either Hagrid or Slughorn, now swapping tales of the illegal trade in dragon eggs. He pointed his wand under the table at the emptying bottles, and he immediately began to refill. After an hour or so, Hagrid and Slughorn began making extravagant toasts to Hogwarts, to Dumbledore, to the elf-made wine, and to... To Harry Potter, bellowed Hagrid, slopping some of his 14th bucket of wine down his chin and he drained it. Yes, indeed, cried Slughorn a little thickly. Perry Otter, the chosen boy who well something of the sort, he mumbled and drained this mug too. Not long after this, Hagrid became tearful again and pressed the whole unicorn tail upon Slughorn, who pocketed it with the cries, To friendship! To generosity! To ten galleons of hair. And for a while after that, Hagrid and Slughorn were sitting side by side, arms around each other, singing a slow, sad song about a dying wizard called Odo. Urgh. The good die young, muttered Hagrid, slumping low onto the table, a little cross-eyed, while Slughorn continued to warble the refrain. Me and Dad was no age to go. Nor were your mum and dad, Harry. Great fat tears oozed out of the corners of Hagrid's crinkled eyes again. He grasped Harry's arm and shook it. Best whiz winchered are their age or never knew. Terrible thing, terrible thing. And Dodo, the hero, they bore him back home to the place that he known as Lad, sang Slughorn plaintively. 
They laid him to rest with the hat inside out and his wand snapped in two, which was sad. Terrible, Hagrid grumbled, and his great shaggy head rolled sideways onto his arms and he fell asleep snoring deeply. Sorry, said Slughorn with a hiccup. Can't carry a tune to save my life. Hagrid wasn't talking about your singing, said Harry quietly. He was talking about my mom and dad dying. Oh, said Slughorn, repressing a large belt. Oh dear, yes, that was was terrible indeed. Terrible, terrible. He looked quite at a loss for what to say and resorted to refilling their mugs. I don't I don't suppose you remember it, Harry, he asked awkwardly. No, well, I was only one when they died, said Harry, his eyes on flame of the candle flickering in Hagrid's heavy snores. But I found out pretty much what happened since my dad died first. Did you know that? I didn't. I, I didn't, said a slughorn in a hushed voice. Yeah, Voldemort murdered him and then stepped over his body toward my mum, said Harry. Slughorn gave a great shudder, but he did not seem able to tear his horrified gaze away from Harry's face. He told her to get out of the way, said Harry remorsely. He told me she needn't have died. He only wanted me. She could have run. Oh, dear, breathed Slughorn. She could have. She needn't? That's awful. It is, isn't it? said Harry in a voice barely more than a whisper. But she didn't move. Dad was already dead. But she didn't want me to go too. She tried to plead with Voldemort, but he just laughed. That's enough, said Slughorn suddenly raising a shaking hand. Really, my dear boy, enough. I'm an old man. I don't need to hear. I don't want to hear. I forgot, lied Harry. Felix Felix is leading him on. You liked her, didn't you? Liked her? Says Leghorn, his eyes brimming with tears once more. I don't imagine anyone who met her wouldn't have liked her. Very brave, very funny. It was the most horrible thing. But you won't help her son, said Harry. She gave me her life, but you won't give me a memory? Hagrid's rumbling snores filled the cabin. Harry looked steadily into Slughorn's tear-filled eyes. The potion's master seemed unable to look away. Don't say that, he whispered. It isn't a question. If it were to help you, of course, but no purpose can be served. It can, said Harry clearly. Dumbledore needs information. I need information. He knew he was safe. Felix was telling him that Slughorn would remember nothing of this in the morning. Looking Slughorn straight in the eye, Harry leaned forward a little. I am the chosen one. I have to kill him. I need that memory. Slughorn turned paler than ever. His shiny forehead gleamed with sweat. You are the chosen one. Of course I am, said Harry calmly. But then... My dear boy, you're asking a great deal. You're asking me, in fact, to aid you. In your attempt to destroy it, you don't want to get rid of the wizard who killed Lily Evans? Harry, Harry, of course I do, but 
You're scared he'll find out you helped me? Slughorn said nothing. He looked terrified. Be brave, like my mother, Professor. Slughorn raised a pudgy hand and pressed his shaking fingers to his mouth. He looked for a moment like an enormously overgrown baby. I am not proud, he whispered through his fingers. I am ashamed of what what that memory shows. I think I may... I've done great damage that day. You'd cancel out anything you did by giving me the memory, said Harry. It would be a brave and noble thing to do. Hagrid twitched in his sleep and snored. Slughorn and Harry stared at each other over the, glutter, uh, the guttering candle. There was a long, long silence, but Felix Felices told Harry not to break it, to wait. Then, very slowly, Slughorn put his hand in his pocket and pulled out his wand. He put his other hand inside his cloak and took out a small, empty bottle, still looking into Harry's eyes. Slughorn touched the tip of the wand to his temple and withdrew it so that a long silver thread of memory came away to cling to the wand tip. Longer and longer, the memory stretched until it broke and swung silvery bright from the wand. Slughorn lowered it into the bottle where it coiled and spread, swirling like a gas. He corked the bottle with a trembling hand and then passed it across the table to Harry. Thank you very much, Professor. You're a good boy, said Professor Slughorn, tears trickling down his fat cheeks into his walrus mustache. You got her eyes. Just don't think too badly of me once you've seen it. And he too put his head on his arms, gave a deep breath, sigh, and fell asleep. Man, the party got started! Getting drunk with the slug horn. <laughs> Getting drunk with the slug club, baby. Yeah, man, that's that's night. That's night right there. That's a man I want to party with. If you can go that ham, <laughs> he got so drunk he's not gonna remember anything. You got blackout drunk, slug. You got blackout drunk, you an old Hagrid. I was saying that Hagrid had fourteen buckets of wine. Hagrid, fourteen <laughs> buckets, man. That's what a guy. What a guy, man. But he finally did it, man, and it made me think, like, it was, like, one of those things where, I mean, exactly what the potion is, but it reminded me of, like, one of those nights, have you ever had one of those nights where everything just goes perfect? It's like uh, one of our old college days, Jay Nelly, takes us back, (laughs) takes us back, man, but yeah, he finally got it, he accomplished the mission, Um, and, you know, it, it made me think, too, you know, how... So any of our audience members, if y'all been in sales or anything before, like that moment, like you're actually taught in sales too. Like you don't speak until the other person speaks first because the person that speaks first loses, right? That's always the thought there. Well, it's just amazing how like he was so on his game, like literally one of those nights where you feel like nothing can go wrong and you're just crushing it and your mind you're in such a loose mind. You're like, okay, I got to play loose here that you don't make a mistake. And you're just like, who cares? Like, it's that feeling of, I don't care. I know I'm going to win. So I have nothing to lose. And he just crushed it, man. And Harry did it. And, uh, well, 
Felix did it. So shout out to our dragon, man. <laughs> That's good stuff. And with that, I'll turn it right back over to you, Jay Nelly. Yeah, man. And like, let's think about this for a second too, because not mm-hmm. only did he get this memory, um, there's also one other thing I thought was really cool. I, I circled it down here yeah. that Professor Sprout's first name is Pomona. I think that's the first time that we hear that. So I wanted to yeah. put that out there. But anyways, that was cool. um, regardless of that, like everything, because it kind of went through what a perfect ideal night came from. Like he had an inspiration in his head. Because like, remember, when he took this potion, they're thinking he's going to go to Slughorn's office and talk to Slughorn. He's like, I'm going down to Hagrid's. They're like, what? <laughs> like, you know, so it just was amazing how it, we took a step-by-step through. Like, sometimes just following your intuition and following your heart and your instincts on what to do is the right move. And he did all of that to a T. And, uh, and he ended up getting the memory that is necessary, which we are going to kind of go into here in this following chapter. Uh, chapter 23 and it's funny because chapter 23 outside of like three bullets it's a it's a full chapter of reading for your boy man so (laughs) i think that uh, with that we're just gonna jump go ahead and jump on into it on page 493 nearly headless nick tells harry that dumbledore in fact did return to the school an hour ago so and also on page 493 harry runs to dumbledore's office and, and it I always like to mention this because it gets you into an idea of like Dumbledore is not who he used to be because he said Dumbledore sounds exhausted mm-hmm. is what the what the text told us there. So yeah, page four ninety four, Harry tells and shows Dumbledore that he was able to get Slughorn's memory. And so now going on from page four ninety four through the end of the chapter, I'm gonna go ahead and start here where he <laughs> says Harry. This is spectacular news. Very well done indeed. I knew you could do it. In all thought of lateness of the hour, apparently forgotten, he hurried around the desk, took the bottle with Slughorn's memory in his uninjured hand, strode over to the cabinet where he kept the pensive. And now, said Dumbledore, placing the stone basin upon his desk, emptying the contents of the bottle into it, now at last we shall see. Harry, quickly. Harry bowed obediently over the pensive and felt his feet leave the office floor. Once again he fell through darkness and landed in Horace Slughorn's office many years before. There was the much younger Slughorn with his thick, shiny, straw-colored hair and his gingery blonde mustache sitting again in the comfortable winged armchair in his office, his feet resting upon a velvet poof, a small glass of wine in one hand, the other rummaging in the box of crystallized pineapple. And there were the half-dozen teenage boys sitting around Slughorn with Tom Riddle. In the midst of them, Marvolo's golden black ring gleaming on its finger. Dumbledore landed beside Harry just as Riddle asked, Sir, is it true that Professor Mary thought is retiring? "'Tom, Tom, if I knew, I couldn't tell you,' said Slunghorn, wagging his finger reprovingly at Riddle, though winking at the same time. "'I must say, I'd like to know where you get your information, boy. More knowledgeable than half the staff you are.' Riddle smiled. The other boys laughed and cast him admiring looks. "'What, with your uncanny ability to know things you shouldn't, and your careful flattery of people who matter—thank you for the pineapple, by the way. You are quite right. It is my favorite.' Several of the boys tittered again. I confidently expect you to rise to Minister of Magic within 20 years. 15 if you keep sending me pineapple. I have excellent contacts with the Ministry. Tom Riddle merely smiled as the others laughed again. Harry noticed that he was by no means the eldest of the group of boys, but they all seemed to look to him as their leader. I don't know that politics would suit me, sir, he said when the laughter had died away. I don't have the right kind of background, for one thing. 
A couple boys around him smirked at each other. Harry was sure they were enjoying a private joke, undoubtedly about what they knew or suspected regarding their gang leader's famous ancestor. Nonsense, said Slughorn briskly. Couldn't be plain where you come from decent wizarding stock. Abilities like yours. No, you'll go far, Tom. And I've never been wrong about a student yet. A small golden clock standing upon Slughorn's desk chimed 11 o'clock behind him, and he already looked around. Good gracious, is that the time already? You'd better get going, boys, or we'll all be in trouble. Lestrange, I want your essay by tomorrow or its detention. Same goes for you, Avery. And one by one, the boys filed out of the room. Slughorn heaved himself out of his armchair and carried his empty glass over to a desk. A movement behind him made him look around, and Riddle was still standing there. Look sharp, Tom. You don't want to be caught out of bed. Out of hours. And you, a prefect. Sir, I wanted to ask you something. Ask away, then, my boy. Ask away. Sir, I wondered what you know about... about horcruxes. Slughorn stared at him, his thick fingers absentmindedly caressing the stem of his wine glass. Project for Defense Against the Dark Arts, is it? But Harry could tell that Slughorn knew perfectly well that this was not schoolwork. Not exactly, sir, said Riddle. I came across a term while reading, and I didn't fully understand it. No, well... You'd be hard-pushed to find a book at Hogwarts that'll give you details on Horcruxes, Tom. That's very dark stuff. Very dark indeed, said Slughorn. But you obviously know all about them, sir. I mean, a wizard like you. I mean, sorry. I mean, if you can't tell me, obviously, I just... I knew if anyone could tell me, you could, so I, I just thought I'd ask. It was very well done, thought Harry. The hesitancy, the casual tone, the careful flattery, none of it overdone. He, Harry, had had... Too much experience of trying to wheedle information out of reluctant people not to recognize a master at work. He could tell that Riddle wanted the information very, very much, perhaps had been working towards this moment for weeks. Well, said Slughorn, not looking at Riddle, but fiddling the ribbon on top of his box of crystallized pineapple. Well, it can't hurt to give you an overview, of course, just so that you understand the term. A horcrux is the word used for an object in which a person has concealed part of their soul. I, I don't quite understand how that works, though, sir, said Riddle. His voice was carefully controlled, but Harry could sense his excitement. Well, you split your soul, you see, said Slughorn, and hide part of it in an object outside the body. Then, if even if one's body is attacked or destroyed, one cannot die, for part of the soul remains earthbound and undamaged. But of course, existence in such a form... Slughorn's face crumpled, and Harry found himself remembering the words he had heard nearly two years before. I was ripped from my body. I was less than a spirit, less than the meanest ghost. But still, I was alive. Few would want it, Tom. Very few. Death would be preferable. But Riddle's hunger was now apparent. His expression was greedy. He could no longer hide his longing. How do you split your soul? Well, said Slughorn uncomfortably, you must understand... That the, the soul is supposed to remain intact and whole. Splitting it is an act of violation. It is against nature. But how do you do it? By an act of evil. The supreme act of evil. By committing murder. Killing rips the soul apart. The wizard intent upon creating a horcrux would use the damage to his advantage. He would encase a torn portion. Encase? But How? There is a spell. Do not ask me. I do not know, said Slughorn, shaking his head like an old elephant bothered by mosquitoes. Do I look as though I have tried it? Do I look like a killer? 
No, sir, of course not, said real quickly. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Not at all, not at all, not offended, said Slughorn gruffly. It's natural to feel some curiosity about these things. Wizards of a certain caliber have always been drawn to that aspect of magic. Yes, sir, said Riddle. What I don't understand, though, is just out of curiosity, I mean. Would one horcrux be much use? Can you only split your soul once? Wouldn't it be better make you stronger to have your soul in more places? I mean, for instance, isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Wouldn't seven... Merlin's beard, Tom, yelped Slughorn. Seven? Isn't it bad enough to think of killing one person? And in any case, bad enough to divide the soul, but to rip it into seven pieces? Slughorn looked deeply troubled now. He was gazing at Riddle as though he had never seen him plainly before, and Harry could tell that he was regretting entering into the conversation at all. Of course, he muttered, this is all hypothetical, what we're discussing, isn't it? All academic? Yes, sir, of course, said Riddle quickly. But all the same, Tom, keep it quiet, what I've told you. That's to say what we've discussed. People wouldn't like to think we've been chatting about horcruxes. It's a banned subject at Hogwarts, you know. Dumbledore's particularly fierce about it. I won't say a word, sir, said Riddle, and he left, but not before Harry had glimpsed his face, which was full of that same wild happiness it had worn when he had first found out that he was a wizard, the sort of happiness that did not enhance his handsome features, but made them somehow less human. Thank you, Harry, said Dumbledore quietly. Let us go. When Harry landed back on the office floor, Dumbledore was already sitting down behind his desk. Harry sat, too, and waited for Dumbledore to speak. I have been hoping for this piece of evidence for a very long time, said Dumbledore at last. It confirms the theory on which I have been working. It tells me that I am right, and also how very far there is still to go. Harry suddenly noticed that every single one of the old headmasters and headmistresses in the portraits around the walls was awake and listening in on their conversation. Or corpulent red-nosed wizard had actually taken out an ear trumpet. Well, Harry, said Dumbledore, I am sure you understood the significance of what we just heard. At the same age as you are now, give or take a few months, Tom Riddle was doing all he could to find out how to make himself immortal. You think he succeeded then, sir? So asked Harry. He made a horcrux? And that's why he didn't die when he attacked me? He had a horcrux hidden somewhere, a bit of his soul safe? A bit or more, said Dumbledore. You heard Voldemort. What he particularly wanted from Horace was an opinion on what would happen to the wizard who created more than one horcrux. What would happen to the wizard so determined to evade death that he would be prepared to murder many times, rip his soul repeatedly so as to soar it in many separately concealed horcruxes. No book would have given him that information. As far as I know, as far, I am sure, as Voldemort knew, no wizard had ever done more than tear his soul in two. Dumbledore paused for a moment, marshalling his thoughts, and then said, Four years ago, I received what I considered certain proof that Voldemort had split his soul. Where? asked Harry. How? You handed it to me, Harry," said Dumbledore. "The diary, Riddle's diary, the one giving me the, the one giving instructions on how to open the Chamber of Secrets. I don't understand, sir. Well, although I did not see the riddle who came out of the diary, what you described to me was a phenomenon I had never witnessed—a mere memory starting to act and think for itself, a mere memory sapping the life out of the girl into whose hands it had fallen. No, something much more sinister had lived inside that book—a fragment of soul." I was almost sure of it. The diary had been a horcrux. But this raised as many questions as it is answered. 
What intrigued and alarmed me most was that the diary had been intended as a weapon as much as a safeguard. I still don't understand, said Harry. Well, it worked as a horcrux is supposed to work. In other words, the fragment of the soul concealed inside, it was kept safe and had undoubtedly played its part in preventing the death of its owner. But there could be no doubt that Riddle really wanted that diary read, wanted the piece of his soul to inhabit or possess somebody else so that Slytherin's monster would be unleashed again. Well, he didn't want his hard work to be wasted, said Harry. He wanted people to know he was Slytherin's heir because he couldn't take the credit at the time. Quite correct, said Dumbledore, nodding. But don't you see, Harry, that if he intended the diary to be passed to or planted on some future Hogwarts student, he was being remarkably blasé about the precious fragment of his soul concealed within. The point of a horcrux is, as Professor Slughorn explained, to keep part of the self hidden and safe not to fling it into somebody else's path and run the risk that they might destroy it, as indeed happened. That particular fragment of soul is no more. You saw to that. The careless way in which Voldemort regarded this horcrux seemed most ominous to me. It suggested that he must have made, or have been planning to make, more horcruxes so that the, f the loss of his first would not be so detrimental. I did not wish to believe it, but nothing else seemed to make sense. Then you told me two years later that on the night that Voldemort returned to body, he made the most illuminating and alarming statement to his Death Eaters. I, who have gone further than anybody along the path that leads to immortality. That was what you said he had told you. Further than anybody, and I thought I knew what that meant, though the Death Eaters did not. He was referring to his Horcruxes. Horcruxes in the plural, Harry, which I do not believe any other wizard has ever had. Yet... If fitted. Lord Voldemort has seemed to grow less human with the passing years, and the transformation he has undergone seemed to be the only explicable of his soul was mutated beyond the realms of what you might call the usual evil. So he's made himself impossible to kill by murdering other people, said Harry. Why couldn't he make a sorcerer's stone or steal one if he's so interested in immortality? Well, we know he tried to do just that five years ago, said Dumbledore, but there are several reasons why, I think, a sorcerer's stone would appeal less than horcruxes to Lord Voldemort. While the elixir of life does extend life, it must be drunk regularly for all eternity if the drinker is to maintain their immortality. Therefore, Voldemort would be entirely dependent on the elixir, and if it ran out, or was contaminated, or if the stone was stolen, he would die, just like any other man. And Voldemort likes to operate alone, remember? I believe that he would have found the thought of being dependent, even on the elixir, intolerable. Of course he was prepared to drink it if it would take him out of the horrible part life to which he was condemned after attacking you, but only to regain a body. Thereafter, I am convinced he intended to continue to rely on his horcruxes. He would need nothing more if he could only regain a human form. He was already immortal, you see, or as close to immortal as any man can be. But now, Harry, armed with this information, the crucial memory you have succeeded in procuring for us, we are closer to the secret of finishing Lord Voldemort than anyone has ever been before. You heard him, Harry. Wouldn't it be better, make you stronger, to have your soul in more pieces? Isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Isn't seven the most powerfully magical number? Yes, I think the idea of a seven-part soul would greatly appeal to Lord Voldemort. He made seven horcruxes, said Harry, horror-struck, while several of the portraits on the wall made similar noises of shock and outrage. But they could be anywhere in the world, hidden, buried, or invisible. 
I am glad to see you appreciate the magnitude of the problem, said Dumbledore calmly. But firstly, no, Harry, not seven horcruxes, six. The seventh part of his soul, however maimed, resides inside his regenerated body. That was a part of him that lived a spectral existence for so many years during his exile. Without that, he has no self at all. That seventh piece of soul will be the last that anybody wishing to kill Voldemort must attack. The piece that lives in his body. But the six horcruxes then, said Harry a little desperately. How are we supposed to find them? You are forgetting that you have already destroyed one of them. And I have destroyed another. You have, said Harry eagerly. Yes, indeed, said Dumbledore, and he raised his black and burn-looking hand. The ring, Harry. Marvelous ring. And a terrible curse was upon it, too. Had it not been, forgive me the lack of seemly modesty, for my own prodigious skills and for Professor Snape's timely action when I returned to Hogwarts, desperately injured, I might not have lived to tell the tale. However, a withered hand does not seem an unreasonable exchange for a seventh of Voldemort's soul. The ring is no longer a horcrux. But how did you find it? Well, as you know, for many years I have made it my business to discover as much as I can about Voldemort's past life. I have traveled widely, visiting those places he once knew. I stumbled across the ring hidden in the ruin of the Gaunt's house. It seems that once Voldemort had succeeded in sealing a piece of his soul inside it, he did not want to wear it anymore. He hid it, protected by many powerful enchantments in the shack where his ancestors had once lived. Morphine having been carted off to Azkaban, of course, never guessing that I might one day take the trouble to visit the ruin, or that I might be keeping an eye open for traces of magical concealment. However, we should not congratulate ourselves too heartily. You destroy the diary, and I the ring, but if we are right in our theory of a seven-part soul, four horcruxes remain. And they could be anything, said Harry. They could be old tin cans, or I don't know, empty potion bottles. You are thinking of port keys, Harry, which must be ordinary objects, easy to overlook. But would Lord Voldemort use tin cans or old potion bottles to guard his own precious soul? You are forgetting what I have showed you. Lord Voldemort liked to collect trophies, and he preferred objects with powerful magical history. His pride, his belief in his own superiority, his determination to carve for himself a startling place in magical history, these things suggest to me that Voldemort would have chosen his horcruxes with some care, favoring objects worthy of the honor. The diary wasn't that special. The diary, as you have said yourself, was proof that he was the heir of Slytherin. I am sure that Voldemort considered it of stupendous importance. So the other horcruxes, do you think you know what they are? asked Harry. I can only guess, said Dumbledore. For reasons I have already given, I believe that Lord Voldemort would prefer objects that in themselves have a certain grandeur. I have therefore trawled back through Voldemort's past to see if I can find evidence that such artifacts have disappeared around him. The locket, said Dumbledore loudly, Hufflepuff's cup. Yes, said Dumbledore, smiling. I'll be prepared to bet, perhaps not my other hand, but a couple fingers, that they became Horcruxes three and four. The remaining two, assuming again that he created a total of six, are more of a problem. But I would hazard a guess that having secured objects from Hufflepuff and Slytherin, he set out to track down objects owned by Gryffindor or Ravenclaw. Four objects from the four founders would, I am sure, have exerted a powerful pull over Voldemort's imagination. I cannot answer for whether he managed to find anything of Ravenclaw's. I am confident, however, that the only known relic of Gryffindor remains safe. And Dumbledore pointed his blackened fingers to the wall behind him where a ruby-encrusted sword 
reposed within a glass case. Do you think that's why he really wanted to come back to Hogwarts, sir? Said Harry, to try and find something from one of the other founders? My thoughts precisely, said Dumbledore, but unfortunately that does not advance us much further, for he was turned away, or so I believe, without the chance to search the school. I am forced to conclude that he never fulfilled his ambition of collecting the four founders' objects. He definitely had two. He may have found three. That is the best we can do for now. Even if he's got something of Ravenclaw's or of Gryffindor's, that leaves a sixth horcrux, said Harry, counting on his fingers, unless he got both. I don't think so, said Dumbledore. I think I know what the sixth horcrux is. I wonder what you will say when I confess that I have been curious for a while about the behavior of the snake Nagini. The snake? said Harry, startled. You can use animals as horcruxes? Well, it's inadvisable to do so, said Dumbledore, because to confide a part of your soul to something that can think and move for itself is obviously a very risky business. However, if my calculations are correct, Voldemort was still at least one horcrux short of his goal of six when you entered your parents' house with the intention of killing you. He seems to reserve the process of making horcruxes for particularly significant deaths. You would have certainly have been that. He believed that in killing you, he was destroying the danger the prophecy had outlined. He believed he was making himself invincible, and I am sure he was intending to make his final horcrux with your death. As we know, he failed. After an interval of some years, however, he used Nagini to kill an old man, and it might have then occurred to him to turn her into his last horcrux. She underlines a southern connection which enhances Lord Voldemort's mystique. I think he is perhaps as fond of her as he can be of anything. He certainly likes to keep her close, and he seems to have an unusual amount of control over her, even for a parcel mouth. So, said Harry, the diary is gone, the ring is gone, the cup, the locket, and the snake are still intact, and you think there might be a horcrux that was once Ravenclaw's or Gryffindor's. An admirably succinct and accurate summary. Yes, said Dumbledore, bowing his head. So we're used to looking for them, sir? Is that what you've been going when you've been leaving the school? Correct, said Dumbledore. I've been looking for a very long time, and I think perhaps I may be close to finding another one. There are hopeful signs. And if you do, said Harry quickly, can I come with you and help get rid of it? Dumbledore looked at Harry very intently for a moment before saying, Yes, I think so. I can, said Harry, thoroughly taken aback. Oh yes, said Dumbledore, smiling slightly. I think you have earned that right. Harry felt his heart lift. It was very good to not to hear the words of caution and protection for once. The headmasters and headmistresses around the wall seemed less impressed by Dumbledore's decision. Harry saw a few of them shaking their heads, and Phineas Nigellus actually snorted. Does Voldemort know when a horcrux is destroyed, sir? Can he feel it? Harry asked, ignoring the portraits. A very interesting question, Harry. I believe not. I believe that Voldemort is now so immersed in evil, and these crucial parts of himself have been detached for so long, that he does not feel as we do. Perhaps at the point of death he may be aware of his loss, but he was not, for instance, that the he was not aware, for instance, that the diary had been destroyed until he forced the truth out of Lucius Malfoy. When Voldemort discovered that the diary had been mutilated and robbed of all its powers, I am told that his anger was terrible to behold. But I thought he meant Lucius to smuggle it into Hogwarts. Yes, he did, years ago, when he was sure he would be able to recreate more Horcruxes. But Lucius was supposed to wait for Voldemort's say-so and never received it, for Voldemort vanished shortly after giving him the diary. No doubt he thought that Lucius would not dare do anything with the Horcrux other than guard it carefully, 
for he was counting too much upon Lucius's fear of a master who had been gone for years and whom Lucius believed dead. Of course, Lucius did not know what the diary really was. I understand that Voldemort had told him the diary would cause the chamber of secrets to reopen because it was cleverly enchanted. Had Lucius known that he had, he had held a portion of his master's soul in his hands, he would have undoubtedly treated it with more reverence, but instead he went ahead and carried out the old plan for his own ends, planting the diary upon Arthur Weasley's daughter. He hoped to discredit Arthur and get rid of a highly incriminating magical object in one stroke. Ah, poor Lucius. What with Voldemort's fury about the fact that he threw away the Horcrux for his own gain and the fiasco at the Ministry last year, I would not be surprised if he is not secretly glad to be safe in Azkaban at the moment. Harry sat and thought for a moment, and then asked, so, if all of his horcruxes are destroyed, Voldemort could be killed. Yes, I think so, said Dumbledore. Without his horcruxes, Voldemort would be a mortal man with a maimed and diminished soul. Never forget, though, that while his soul may be damaged beyond repair, his brain and magical powers remain intact. It will take uncommon skill and power to kill a wizard like Voldemort even without his horcruxes. But I haven't gotten uncommon skill and powers, said Harry before he could stop himself. Yes, you have, said Dumbledore firmly. You have a power that Voldemort has never had. You can... I know, said Harry impatiently. I can love. It was only with difficulty that he stopped himself from adding, big deal. Yes, Harry, you can love, said Dumbledore, who looked as though he knew perfectly well what Harry had just refrained from saying. Which, given everything that has happened to you, is a great and remarkable thing. You are still too young to understand how unusual you are, Harry. So when the prophecy says that I'll have the power the Dark Lord knows not, it just means love, asked Harry, feeling a little let down. Yes, just love, said Dumbledore. But Harry, never forget that the prophecy says is only significant because Voldemort made it so. I told you this at the end of last year. Voldemort singled you out as the person who would be the most dangerous to him, and in doing so, he made you the person who would be the most dangerous to him. But it comes to the same... No, it doesn't! said Dumbledore, sounding impatient now. Pointing at Harry with his black withered hand, he said, You are setting too much store by the prophecy. But, spluttered Harry, you said the prophecy means, if Voldemort had never heard the prophecy, would it have been fulfilled? Would it have meant anything? Of course not. Do you think every prophecy in the Hall of Prophecy has been fulfilled? But, said Harry bewildered, last year you said one of us has to kill the other. Harry, Harry, only because Voldemort made a grave error and acted on Professor Trelawney's words. If Voldemort had never murdered your father, would he have imparted you in a furious state for revenge? Of course not. If he had not forced your mother to die before you, would he have not given you a magical protection that you could not penetrate? Of course not, Harry. Don't you see? Voldemort himself created his own worst enemy, just as tyrants everywhere do. Have you any idea how much tyrants fear the people they oppress? All of them realize that one day, amongst their many victims, there is sure to be one who rises against them and strikes back. Voldemort is no different. Always he was on the lookout for the one who would challenge him. He heard the prophecy and left into action, with the result that he not only handpicked the man most likely to finish him, he also handed him uniquely deadly weapons. But it is essential that you understand this, said Dumbledore, standing up and striding about the room, his glittering robe swooshing in his wake. Harry had never seen him so agitated. By attempting to kill you, Voldemort himself singled out the remarkable person who sits here in front of me and gave him the tools for the job. It is Voldemort's fault 
that you are able to see into his thoughts, his ambitions, that you even understand the snake-like language in which he gives orders. And yet, Harry, despite your privileged insight into Voldemort's world, which incidentally is a gift any Death Eater would kill to have, you have never been seduced by the dark arts, not even for a second, shown the slightest desire to become one of Voldemort's followers. Of course I haven't. He killed my mom and dad. You are protected, in short, by your ability to love, said Dumbledore loudly, the only protection that can possibly work against a lure of power like Voldemort's. In spite of all the temptation you've endured, all the suffering, you remain pure of heart, just as pure as you were at the age of eleven when you stared into a mirror that reflected your heart's desire, and it showed you only the way to thwart Voldemort and not immortality or riches. Harry, have you any idea how few wizards could have seen what you saw in the mirror? Voldemort should have known then what he was dealing with, but he did not. But he knows now. You have flitted into Lord Voldemort's mind without damage to yourself, but he cannot possess you without enduring mortal agony, as he discovered in the Ministry. I do not think he understands why, Harry, but then he was in such a hurry to mutilate his own soul, he never paused to understand the, the incomparable power of a soul that is untarnished and whole. But sir, said Harry, making valiant efforts to not sound argumentative, it all comes to the same thing, doesn't it? I've got to try to kill him, or got to, said Dumbledore. Of course you've got to, but not because of the prophecy. Because you, yourself, will never rest until you've tried. We both know it. Imagine, please, just for a moment, that you had never heard the prophecy. How would you feel about Voldemort now? Think. Harry watched Dumbledore striding up and down in front of him, and he thought. He thought of his mother, his father, and Sirius. He thought of Cedric Diggory. He thought of all the terrible deeds that he knew Voldemort had done, and a flame seemed to leap, in, seemed to leap inside his chest, searing his throat. I'd want him finished, said Harry quietly, and I'd want to be the one to do it. Of course you would, cried Dumbledore. You see, the prophecy does not mean you have to do anything, but the prophecy caused Lord Voldemort to mark you as his equal. In other words, you are free to choose your way, quite free to turn your back on the prophecy. But Voldemort continues to set store by the prophecy, and he will continue to hunt you, which makes it certain, really, that that one of us is going to end up killing the other, said Harry. Yes. But he understood at last what Dumbledore had been trying to tell him. It was, he thought, the difference between being dragged into the arena to face a battle to the death versus walking into the arena with your head held high. Some people, perhaps, would say that there is little to choose between the two ways. But Dumbledore knew, and so do I, thought Harry with a rush of fierce pride, and so did my parents, that there was all the difference in the world. That's some deep stuff. That is very deep stuff. And that's chapter 23 for us. We got one more to go, but let's go ahead and talk about that chapter a little bit, man. Like, this yeah. is where we find out everything. This is all the big stuff. We get that memory from Slughorn. Turns out that what Horcruxes are are objects that you can place parts of your soul into. The way you do it is you kill somebody, and then there's a spell that we don't learn what it is because Slughorn said, I don't know it, don't ask me. Do I look like I've been someone who done it? Do I look like a killer to you? So we don't actually know the spell on which it is used to, unless Chase does with interesting facts. I don't want to step on his toes there if he does know the spell. Oh, but, no, no, I'm uh, not going <laughs> to. All right, so anyways, so then we know that, that he's able to impart part of his soul into objects. And why everything has started to come full circle these big things that we've been learning throughout the lessons with Dumbledore and Harry about the ring, about the cup, about the locket, why this is all important. It's not just trophies that he's stealing. It's likely, you know, that we're finding out, obviously it's not confirmed, but it's highly, highly more likely than not that Voldemort has put part of his soul in each of these, these uh, 
instruments, I should say, you know, all these items. There we go. You know, so and what's also more impressive too with that memory is you find out that you can split your soul into seven pieces. Now, why is that important? Because we can already start counting down what they are. Because as Harry mentioned, they could be anything in the world. And that makes it a very daunting task until we realize that number one, there's part of his soul inside his current body, Voldemort's current body. Number two, there was one inside the diary that's gone. Three, there was one inside the ring that's gone. So we already see three out of seven. There's only four left. Then if we kind of count for a fact that the locket and the and the um, cup is the, the other two, now all of a sudden it's only down to two more. And and Dumbledore thinks you know that Nagini may be one of them. So really, it's like about finding one extra one that will you know we learn a lot about in Deathly Hallows, and we do realize that later on. I'm not going to give a um, anything away, but Dumbledore does make a mistake uh, in terms of the Horcruxes. But anyways. I'll, I'll say that for now. I'm not going to mention anything about it. But that was a lot that we learned from that chapter. Everything kind of came. And on top of that, we also learned that that the power of love is important in terms of the weapon that he knows not. Because, like he said, it's it, the, way, the way Harry had been looking at it, as if he was going to have to face Voldemort, you know, one of them would have to kill each other and there's nothing he could do about it. Like, he, like basically he said he was going to be dragged into this battle whether he wanted to or not. Where Dumbledore was like, no, you got to think of it from the exact opposite. Forget the prophecy. Think of all the stuff Voldemort's done and how he's affected you and your family and other people's families and how would you feel. And Harry's like, oh, shoot. No, I want to go into that battle. And that's where all the difference lies. And so that was what is super important in that chapter. And I'll go ahead and give you your thoughts on the chapter and we'll kind of get into the last one. Yeah, I mean, it's a deep chapter. Like, this is where, you know, all the details come into play. Um, it, it's very interesting too because you know even going back to the whole idea of like we covered Westworld as far as like thoughts and choices and analysis and like the real world it, it's almost like kind of that whole theory of your fate is always your fate no matter what your choice is your choice is just to accept it so you could it's almost like saying like your fate will always be your fate but you have the choice to do whatever you want so you have the ability to embrace it and conquer it and take it head on or you can back down like a coward is ultimately what it's saying because you're in the end you've already made the choice so you might as well do what you want to do so it's that deep intellectual thought where it's so wild like thinking about you know really how that how that relates which it's it's funny too because this entire chapter like plays so much into you know when everything wraps up full circle there um especially even just that one sentence you know walking into a battle like with your head held high um (laughs) exactly kind of the way everything winds up going down but yeah it's uh i mean i think you really hit everything like nailed on the head there um just yeah i mean this is that this is that moment like we've finally hit that point in the series where everything's starting to make sense sort of at least we're finally starting to get answers um which is so yeah yeah we finally finally made it there right we've kind of got a direction on where we have to go from here like now we know what we've got to do uh there's Mm -hmm. a couple there's two other things i wanted to point out in that chapter as well is we learn about what happened to Dumbledore's hand and why it's black and withered and how he almost mm-hmm. died if he wasn't for his own prodigious skills and Severus Snape 
helping control where that that um, where where it was kind of confined to just his hand instead of spreading throughout his whole body. So I thought that was pretty important to point out too. Right. But yeah. So now we know what we've got to do moving forward throughout the rest of the the series. We've got to find these Horcruxes. Once we take them out one by one, Voldemort will be vulnerable and we will be able to take him out. But even Dumbledore said, like even once you take out all the Horcruxes, Voldemort is still Voldemort, man. He's still one of the most skilled wizards that ever lives. It's still going to take someone with considerable skill and powers to take him out. So that the it's not like yeah. it's not just because we know what to do now that it's all easy and rainbows and daisies. Like this is still a heavy task, man. Especially when we yeah. learn about what happens that we won't talk about this week. We'll talk about next week, but still, man. Anyways, um, yeah, I guess we'll we'll just jump into the next chapter here. It got some bullet points before I let you kind of take it and read it all the way through. Do you want me to just jump into those and let you take it from there? Yeah, man. Sounds great to me. Let's Good stuff. You know, I'm kind of a big. Dragon Ball Z fan. I'll explain it after this chapter, but I kept thinking of, uh, you know, this uh, kind of big spell that comes up, almost like, remember how Trunks is like, Basica! Yeah. <laughs> like, hits him with the sword. Anyways, I'll let you take it away, man. I, I'm. This is a badass chapter. This was a chapter I literally read at, uh, and Jay Nelly knows, I keep doing it to myself, man. And I think it's just because, you know, we've explained it so many times. We have so much going on. There's so much content and all that. But I was reading it at 6 in the morning, and usually you would get tired at 6 in the morning where you can barely keep your eyes up. I couldn't put it down. I couldn't <laughs> stop it. I was like, this is insane. It was so good, man. I'll let you take it away, Jay Nelly. Perfect. Yeah, sounds good. So on page 513, Harry gives Ron and Hermione a recap of the previous night's events in terms of how he got the memory from Slughorn, how him and Dumbledore went into the Pensieve, and kind of like where that information ended up on that we just kind of broke down and talked about and analyzed before we jumped into this chapter. Um, So when Harry gives Ron and Hermione that recap, they kind of give Harry a recap of their night. So Ron and Lavender broke up on page 514. We learned that, that Ron and Lavender are done because... They couldn't. Lavender couldn't see Harry in the invisibility cloak, so all she, all Lavender saw was Ron and Hermione walking together. So now Ron and Lavender are done. Hermione on page five fourteen also tells uh, Harry that Dean and Ginny broke up too. A little bit of foreshadow there, but the reason why is because of the. Uh, actually, it's a full circle more than a foreshadow because remember he accidentally bumped into her and she's like, "I can get to the portal on my own, Dean." <laughs> like, oh yeah. So apparently, uh, <laughs> apparently that actually that small fight caused um, them to them to break up. So. Two relationships gone, uh, but they leave room for new relationships to blossom, I'll say. <laughs> but uh, on page 516, Harry's having an internal struggle over if he should pursue Ginny or not because of his friendship with Ron. It's kind of like an internal struggle he has really throughout the, the book. Well, not through the book. is like that, what happens at the very, very end. But anyways, uh, <laughs> on page 516, we get an awesome return of a character. Katie Bell's back. She's finally back from St. Mungo's. She's alive. She's well. And we can finally get Dean off the, the damn team. He's gone. But uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that doesn't last. Yeah, that doesn't last, though, because of what happens at the end of this chapter. But anyways, as of right now, Katie Bell's back and Dean's off the team. And so now Cormac's gone, too, because Ron's back and healthy. So now our team is back to full it's full strength. It's uh, Ginny as a chaser, Demelza Robbins as a chaser, Katie Bell as a chaser, Coot and Peaks as beaters, Ron as keeper, Harry as seeker. We got we got the A team for now. <laughs> uh, now, at page five seventeen, Hermione tries to convince Harry to not use or waste his Felix Felicis potion on trying to get into the room requirement. 
but to save it for when he and Dumbledore go to destroy a Horcrux, which honestly is a very great idea on Hermione's part. So, you know, will Harry listen to her? I guess we'll find out because he never seems to want to ever listen to a dang thing she says. <laughs> but on page 518, uh, Harry comes across the Secumsempra spell again in the Half-Blood Prince potion book, which is a foreshadow uh, of what happens later in this chapter. And then the last thing I'll have before I give to Chase on page 520, and he'll take us all the way through the end of the chapter, is on page 519, Harry still is heavily deliberating on what to do about his feelings for Ginny. Now it's not so much about should he be feeling these feelings. Now it's like, what do I do about it? Do I tell Ron first? Do I make a move on Ginny first? Like, how do I navigate this? It's all confusing. But... With that being said, I will not waste your guys' time anymore. Without further ado, Chase Brown is going to take us on page 520, the second paragraph, and he's going to take us all the way through the end of the chapter, and uh, we're going to see what goes on in this badass chapter, man. Let's do it, man. Let's get our running shoes on, because Let's some do of it. us are going to be running for our life. <laughs> That's for Heck sure. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, Ron was not unique in this respect. Interest in the Gryffindor-Ravenclaw game was running extremely high throughout the school, for the match would decide the championship, which was still wide open. If Gryffindor beat Ravenclaw by a margin of 300 points, a tall order, and yet Harry had never known his team to fly better, then they would win the championship. If they won by less than 300 points, they would come second to Ravenclaw. If they lost by 100 points, they would be behind Hufflepuff, and if they lost by more than 100, they would be in fourth place, and nobody, Harry thought, would ever let him forget that it had been he who had Captain Gryffindor to their first bottom-of-the-table defeat in two centuries. The run-up to this crucial match had all the usual features, members of rival houses attempting to intimidate opposing teams in the corridors, unpleasant chants about individual players being rehearsed loudly as they passed, the team members themselves either swaggering around enjoying all the attention or else dashing into bathrooms between classes to throw up. Somehow, the game had become inextricably linked in Harry's mind with the success or failure in his plans for Jenny. He could not help feeling that if they won by more than 300 points, the scenes of euphoria and nice loud aftermatch party might be just as good as a hearty swig of Felix Felix's. In the midst of all the preoccupations, Harry had not forgotten his other ambition, finding out what Malfoy was up to in the room of requirement. He was still checking the Marauder's map, and as he was unable to locate Malfoy on it, deduced that Malfoy was still spending plenty of time within the room. Although Harry was losing hope that he would ever succeed in getting inside the room of requirement, he attempted it whenever he was in the vicinity, but no matter how he rewarded his request, the wall remained firmly doorless. A few days later, before the match against Ravenclaw, Harry found himself walking down to dinner alone from the common room. Ron having rushed over into the nearby bathroom to throw up yet again, and Hermione having dashed off to see Professor Vector about a mistake she thought she had she might have made in their last arithmetic essay, more out of habit than anything. Harry made his usual detour along the seventh, seventh floor corridor, checking the Marauder's map as he went. For a moment, he could not find Malfoy anywhere and assumed he must indeed be inside the room of requirement again. But then he saw Malfoy's tiny labeled dot 
standing in a boy's bathroom on the floor below, accompanied not by Crab or Goyle, but by Moaning Myrtle. Harry only stopped staring at this unlikely coupling when he walked right into a suit of armor. The loud crash brought him out of his reverie. Hurrying from the scene, lest Filch turn up, he dashed down the marble staircase and along the passageway below. Outside the bathroom, he pressed his ear against the door. He could not hear anything. He very quietly pushed the door open. Draco was standing with his back to the door, his hands clutching either side of the sink. His white, blonde head bowed. Don't, crooned Moaning Myrtle's voice from one of the cubicles. Don't. Tell me what's wrong. I can help you. No one can help me, said Malfoy. His whole body was shaking. I can't do it. I can't. It won't work. And unless I do it soon, he says he'll kill me. And Harry realized, with a shock so huge it seemed to root him to the spot, that Malfoy is crying. Actually crying. Tears streaming down his pale face into the Grimsey Basin. Malfoy gasped and gulped and then with a great shudder looked up into the cracked mirror and saw Harry staring at him over his shoulder. Malfoy wheeled around, drawing his wand instinctively. Harry pulled out his own. Malfoy's hex missed Harry by inches, shattering the lamp on the wall beside him. Harry threw himself sideways, thought, Levius Corpus, and flicked his wand, but Malfoy blocked the jinx and raised his wand for another. No! No! Stop it! squealed Moaning Myrtle, her voice echoing loudly around the tiled room. Stop! Stop! There was a loud bang and bin behind Harry exploded. Harry attempted a leg locker curse that backfired off the wall behind Malfoy's ear and smashed the cistern beneath Moaning Myrtle who screamed loudly. Water poured everywhere and Harry slipped as Malfoy's face contorted cried, Cruci Sectum Sempra! bellowed Harry from the floor, waving his wand wildly. Blood splurted from Malfoy's face and chest as though he had been slashed with an invisible sword. He staggered backward and collapsed onto the waterlogged floor with a great splash, his wand falling from limp right hand. No! gasped Harry. Slipping and staggering, Harry got to his feet and plunged toward Malfoy, whose face was now shining scarlet, his white hands scrabbling at his blood-soaked chest. No, I... I didn't. Harry did not know what he was saying. He fell to his knees beside Malfoy, who was shaking uncontrollably in a pool of his own blood. Moaning Myrtle let out a deafening scream. Murder! Murder in the bathroom! Murder! The door banged open behind Harry, and he looked up, terrified. Snape had burst into the room, his face livid. Pushing Harry roughly aside, he knelt over Malfoy, drew his wand, and traced it over the deep wounds Harry's curse had made, muttering an incantation that sounded almost like a song. The flow of blood seemed eased. Snape wiped his residue from Malfoy's face and repeated his spell. Now the wounds seemed to be knitting. Harry was still watching, horrified by what he had done. Barely aware that he was too soaked in blood and water, Moaning Myrtle was still sobbing and wailing overhead. When Snape had performed his counter curse for the third time, he half-lifted Malfoy into standing position. You need the hospital wing. There may be a certain amount of scarring, but if you can take Dinity immediately, we might avoid even that. Come. He supported Malfoy across the bathroom, turning to the door to say in a voice of cold fury, And you, Potter, you wait here for me. It did not occur to Harry for a second to disobey. 
He stood up slowly, shaking, looked down at the wet floor and their blood stains, floating like crimson flowers across its surface. It could not even find it in himself to tell Moaning Myrtle to be quiet as she continued to wail and sob with increasingly evident enjoyment. Snape returned ten minutes later. He stepped into the bathroom and closed the door behind him. Go, he said to Myrtle, and she swooped back into her toilet and once leaving a ringing silence behind her. I'd... I didn't mean it to happen, said Harry at once. His voice echoed in cold, watery space. I I didn't know what the spell did. But Snape ignored this. Apparently I underestimated you, Potter, he said quietly. Who would have thought you knew such dark magic? Who taught you that spell? I, I read about it somewhere. Where? It was... A library book, Harry invented wildly. I can't, rem I can't remember what it was called. Liar, said Snape. Harry's throat went dry. He knew what Snape was going to do, and he had never been able to prevent it. The bathroom seemed to shimmer before his eyes. He struggled to block out all thought, but try as he might, the half-blood prince's copy of advanced potion making swam hazily to the forefront of his mind. And then he was staring at Snape again in the midst of this wreck-soaked bathroom. He stared into Snape's black eyes, hoping against hope that Snape had not seen what he had feared. But bring me your school bag, said Snape softly, and all of your school books. All of them. Bring them to me, now! There was no point in arguing. Harry turned at once and splashed out of the bathroom. Once in the corridor, he broke into a run toward Gryffindor Tower. Most people were walking the other way. They gaped at him, drenched in water and blood, but he answered none of the questions, fired at, at him as he ran past. He felt stunned. He was as though a beloved pet had turned suddenly savage. What had the prince been thinking to copy such a spell into the book? What would happen when Snape saw it? Would he tell Slughorn? Harry's stomach churned. How Harry had been achieving such good results in potions all year? Would he confiscate or destroy the book that he taught Harry so much? The book that had become a kind of guide and friend? Harry could not let it happen. He could not. Where have you... Why are you soaking? Is that, is that blood? Ron was standing at the top of the stairs looking bewildered at the sight of Harry. I need your book, Harry panted. Your potions book, quick, give it to me. But what about the half-blood? I'll explain later. Ron pulled the copy of Advanced Potion Making out of his bag and handed it over. Harry sprinted off past him and back to the common room. Here, he seized his school bag, ignoring the amazed looks of several people who had already finished their dinner, threw himself back out of the portrait hole, and hurled along the seventh-floor corridor. He skidded to a halt beside the tapestry of dancing trolls, closed his eyes, and began to walk. I need a place to hide my book. I need a place to hide my book. I need a place to hide my book. Three times he walked up and down of the front stretch of the blank wall. When his opened eyes there, it was at last. The door to the room of requirement. Harry wrenched it open, flung it himself inside, and slammed it shut. He gasped. Despite his haste, his panic, his fear of what awaited him back in the bathroom, he could not help but be overawed by what he was looking at. He was standing in a room the size of a large cathedral whose high windows were sending shafts of light down upon what looked like a city with towering walls. 
built of what Harry knew must be objects hidden by generations of Hogwarts inhabitants. There were alleyways and roads bordered by teetering piles of broken and damaged furniture, stowed away perhaps to hide the evidence of mishandled magic or else hidden by castle-proud house elves. There were thousands and thousands of books, no doubt banned or graffitied or stolen. There were weaned catapults and fanged frisbees, some still weighed enough life in them to hover half-heartedly over the mountains of other forbidden items. Uh, there were chipped bottles of congealed potions, hats, jewels, cloaks. There were what looked like dragon eggshells, cork bottles, whose continents still shimmered evilly. Several rusting swords and a heavy blood-stained axe. Harry hurried, for, hurried forward into one of the main many alleyways between all the hidden treasure. He turned right past an enormous stuffed troll, ran on a short way, took a left at the broken vanishing cabinet in which Montag had got lost the previous year, finally pausing beside a large cupboard that seemed to have had acid thrown at its blistered surface. He opened one of the cupboard's creaking doors. It had already been used in the hiding place for something in a cage that had long since died. Its skeleton had five legs. He stuffed the half-blood prince book behind the cage and slammed the door. He paused for a moment. His heart thumped horribly, gazing around at all the clutter. Would he be able to find this spot again amidst all this junk? Seizing the chipped bust of an ugly old warlock from on top of the nearby crate, he stood it on top of the cover where the book was now hidden, perched a dusty old wig and a tarnished tiara on the statue's head to make it more distinctive than sprinted back through the alleyways of hidden junk as fast as he could go. Back to the door, back out of the corridor, where he slammed the door behind him and it turned back once into stone. Harry ran flat out toward the bathroom on the floor below, cramming Ron's copy of advanced potion making into his bag as he did so. A minute later, he was back in front of Snape, who held out his hand wordlessly for Harry's school bag. Harry handed it over, panting, searing pain in his chest, and waited. One by one, Snape extracted Harry's books and examined them. Finally, the only book left was Potion's book, which he looked at very carefully before speaking. This is your copy of Advanced Potion Making, is it, Potter? Yes, said Harry, still breathing hard. You're quite sure of that, are you, Potter? Yes, said Harry, with a touch more defiance. This is a copy of advanced potion making that you purchased from Flourish and Blots? Yes, said Harry firmly. Then why, asked Snape, does it have the name Ronil Wazalib written inside the front cover? Harry's heart missed a beat. That's... That's my nickname, he said. Your nickname, repeated Snape. Yeah, that, that's what my friends call me, said Harry. Understand what a nickname is, said Snape. The cold black eyes were boring once more into Harry's. He tried not to look into them. Close your mind. Close your mind. But he had never learned how to do it properly. Do you know what I think, Potter? Said Snape very quietly. I think you're a liar and a cheat, and that you deserve detention with me every Saturday until the end of term. What do you think about, Potter? 
What do you think, Potter? I, I don't agree, sir, said Harry, still refusing to look into Snape's eyes. Well, we shall see how you feel after your detentions, said Snape. Ten o'clock, Saturday morning, Potter, my office. But, sir, said Harry, looking up desperately, Quidditch, the last match of the ten o'clock. Ten o'clock, whispered Snape, with a smile that showed his yellow teeth. Poor Gryffindor. Fourth place this year, I fear. And he left the bathroom without another word, leaving Harry to stare into the cracked mirror, feeling sicker. He was sure than Ron had ever left in his life. I won't say I told you so, said Hermione, an hour later in the common room. Leave it, Hermione, said Ron angrily. Harry had never made it to dinner. He had no appetite at all. He had just finished telling Ron and Hermione and Ginny what had happened. Not that there seemed to have been much need. The news had traveled very fast. Apparently, Moaning Myrtle had taken it upon herself to pop up in every bathroom in the castle to tell a story. Malfoy had already been visited in the hospital wing by Pansy Parkinson's, who had lost no time in vilifying Harry far and wide, and Snape had told the staff precisely what had happened. Harry had already been called out of the common room to endure 15 highly unpleasant minutes in the company of Professor McGonagall, who had told him he was lucky not to have been expelled, and that she supported wholeheartedly Snape's punishment of detention every Saturday until the end of term. I told you there was something wrong with Prince Pearson, Prince Person, Hermione said, evidently unable to stop herself, and I was right, wasn't I? No, I don't think you were, said Harry stubbornly. He was having a bad enough time without Hermione lecturing him. The looks on Gryffindor's team's faces when he had told them he would not be able to play on Saturday had been worst punishment of all. He could feel Jenny's eyes on him now but did not meet them. He did not want to see disappointment or anger there. He had just told her that she would be playing Seeker on Saturday and that Dean would be rejoining the team as Chaser in her place. Perhaps, if they won, Ginny and Dean would make up during the post-match euphoria. The thought went through Harry like an icy knife. Harry, said Hermione, how can you still stick up for that book with that spell? Will you stop harping on about that book? snapped Harry. The prince only copied it out. It's not like he was advising anyone to use it. For all we know, he was making a note of something that had been used against him. I don't believe this, said Hermione. You're actually defending... I'm not defending what I did, said Harry quickly. I wish I hadn't done it. And not just because I've got about a dozen detentions, you know. I wouldn't use a spell like that, not even on Malfoy. But you can't blame the prince. He hadn't written tried it out. It's really good. He was just making notes for himself, wasn't he? Not for anyone else. Are you telling me, said Hermione, that you're going to go back and get the book? Yeah, I am, said Harry forcefully. Listen, without the prince, I'd never have won Felix Felix's. I'd never have known how to save Ron from poisoning. I'd never have got a reputation for potions brilliance you don't deserve, said Hermione nastily. Give it a rest, Hermione said Jenny, and Harry was so amazed, so grateful he looked up. By the sound of it, Malfoy was trying to use an unforgivable curse. You should be glad Harry had something good up his sleeve. 
Well, of course I'm glad Harry wasn't cursed, said Hermione, clearly stung. But you can't call that circumcentra spell good, Jenny. Look where it landed him. And I'd have thought, seeing what this had done to your chances in the match? Oh, don't start acting as though you understand Quidditch, snapped Jenny. You'll only embarrass yourself. Harry and Ron stared. Hermione and Jenny, who had always got on together very well, were now sitting with arms folded, glaring in opposite directions. Ron looked nervously at Harry, then snatched up a book at random and hid behind it. Harry, however, little though he knew he deserved it, felt unbelievably cheerful all of a sudden, even though none of them spoke again for the rest of the evening. His lightheartedness was short-lived. There were slithering taunts to be endured every day, not to mention much anger from fellow Gryffindors who were most unhappy that their captain had got himself banned from the final match of the season. By Saturday morning, whatever he might have told Hermione, Harry would have gladly exchanged all the Felix Felices in the world to be walking down to the Quidditch pitch with Ron, Jenny, and the others. It was almost unbearable to turn away from the massive students streaming out into the sunshine, all of them wearing rosettes and hats and brandishing banners and scarves to descend the stone steps into the dungeons and walk until the distant sounds of the crowd were quite obliterated. Knowing that he would not be able to hear a word of commentary or cheer or groan. Ah, Potter, said Snape. When Harry had knocked on his door and entered the unpleasantly familiar office that Snape, despite teaching floors above now, had not vacated, it was dimly lit as ever. The same slimy dead objects were suspended in colored potions all around the walls. Ominously, there were many cobweb boxes piled up on the table where Harry was clearly supposed to sit. They had an aura of tedious, hard, and pointless work about them. Mr. Filch has been looking for someone to clear out these old files, said Snape softly. They are the record of other Hogwarts wrongdoers and their punishments. Where the ink has grown faint or the cards have suffered damage from mice. We would like you to copy out the crimes and the punishments afresh and making sure that they are in alphabetical order. Replace them in the boxes. You will not use magic. Right, Professor, said Harry, with as much contempt as he could put into the last three syllables. I thought you could start, said Snape, a malicious smile on his lips, with boxes 1,012 to 1,056. You will find some familiar names in there, which should add interest to the task, here you see. He pulled out a card from one of the topmost boxes with flourish and red. James Potter and Sirius Black apprehended using an illegal hex upon Batrim Aubrey. Aubrey's head twice normal size, double detention. Snape sneered. <laughs> it must be such a comfort to think that, though they are gone, a record of their great achievement remains. Harry felt the familiar boiling sensation in the pit of his stomach, biting his tongue to prevent himself retaliating. He sat down in front of the boxes and pulled one toward him. It was, as Harry had anticipated, useless, boring work, punctuated, as Snape had clearly planned. With a regular jolt in his stomach, that meant he had just read his father or Sirius's names, usually coupled together in various petty misdeeds, occasionally accompanied by those Remus Lupin and Peter Pettigrew. 
and while he copied out all their various offenses and punishments, he wondered what was going on outside. Where the match would have just started? Jenny playing Seeker against Cho? Harry glanced again and again at the large clock ticking on the wall. It seemed to be moving half as fast as a regular clock. Perhaps Snake had, Snape had bewitched it to go extra slowly. He could not have been here for only half an hour. An hour? An hour and a half? Harry's stomach started rumbling when the clock showed half past twelve. Snape, who had not spoken at all since setting Harry his task, finally looked up at ten past one. I think that'll do, he said coldly. Mark the place you've reached. You will continue at ten o'clock next Saturday. Yes, sir. Harry stuffed a bent card into the box at random and hurried out of the door before Snape could change his mind, racing back up the stone steps, straining his ears to hear a sound from the pitch. But all was quiet. It was over then. He hesitated outside the crowded great hall, then ran up the marble staircase. Whether Gryffindor had won or lost, the team usually celebrated or commiserated in their own common room. Quit Agus? He said tentatively to the fat lady, wondering what he would find inside. Her expression was unreadable as she replied, You'll see. And she swung forward. A roar of celebration erupted from the hole behind her. Harry gaped as people began to scream to the side of him. Several hands pulled him into the room. We won! yelled Ron, bounding into sight and brandishing the silver cup at Harry. We won! 450 to 140! We won! Harry looked around. There was Jenny running toward him. She had a hard, blazing look in her face, and she threw her arms around him. And without thinking, without planning it, without worrying about the fact that 50 people were watching, Harry kissed her. After several long moments, or it might have been half an hour, or possibly several sunlit days, they broke apart. The room had gone very quiet. Then several people wolf whistled, and there was an outbreak of nervous giggling. Harry looked over the top of Jenny's head to see Dean Thomas holding a shattered glass in his hand, and Ramilda Vane looking as though she might throw something. Hermione was beaming, but Harry's eyes sought Ron. At last he found him still clutching the cup and wearing an expression appropriate to having been clubbed over the head. For a fraction of a second, they looked at each other. Then Ron gave a tiny jerk of the head that Harry understood to mean, well, if you must. The creature in his chest roaring in triumph, he grimmed down at Ginny and gestured wordlessly out of the portrait hole. A long walk in the ground seemed indicated during which, if they had time, they might discuss the match. Finally, he got his girl, man. <laughs> Great stuff. I gotta say, just reflecting on that chapter, that's probably one of my favorite chapters out of the whole series because it had it all. It had the anticipation, the suspense. It had the ending that was realistic. Like the realistic ending where the good guy doesn't always win, but at the same time, it comes full circle and you're okay with it because you're still like happy about it. And at the same time, then you got all the detail of, you know, especially looking for us that know the book right now, 
seeing it from Snape's side, it's like, you motherfucker. <laughs> like, it's exactly what it is. And, uh, you know, I told you today, I his ass should have been expelled. Like, I, I get it, though, because here's the problem, though, is Harry's never thought through his actions. I don't want to say, like, controlled his temper. He's never had an anger problem. But he's never thought through things. And it's finally bit him in the ass. If he had just cast Stupefy, it wouldn't have ever had any repercussions like that. Like, ever. But he almost fucking killed him. Like, I'm just, who cares? I don't even know what the fuck this is. But I'm going to go ahead and shoot it at you anyways. Fuck you, Malfoy. Have a good life, man. Have a good life, bro. What if he was literally, like, decapitated or something? Like, he could have been screwed right there. Like, it could have been over. It's game over. But it all came full circle, and I'm telling you, man, as I was reading this, and it, like, it took me back because, you know, you forget so much detail from when you read it the first time when you were a kid. Like, my heart was racing for him. Like, you run. Like, just run. Like, who gives a fuck what they think? I felt like Arya Stark in season six of Game of Thrones, where she was, like, stabbed to hell and back trying to get away from the waif. Dude, it was awesome, man. It had everything I wanted in that chapter. Ginny and Harry finally. And, you know, Ron does exactly what a best friend should do. Supported his boy. Is always there. Just like they always got each other's back. They still won the game, and they took the trophy home, which, you know, I wouldn't have cared if Ravenclaw won because I used to be in their house, and then they kicked me out. But, yeah, man, I mean, but, uh, no, I'm glad we brought the cup home. And what did you think about this one, man? I thought it was a good chapter. I, like, and I'm nowhere near as excited about it as you are, but I did, I did like the chapter. Uh, it was a cool battle between, like, Harry and Malfoy, and they always do – have pretty cool things, but like to Harry's defense, if you're gonna give him a defense, Malfoy was about to use the Cruciatus curse on him. So like, I mean, still that is it smart to use a spell you've never done before? No, <laughs> but it did say four enemies in parentheses. So I guess he he's like, well, Malfoy's as much of an enemy as I'm ever gonna have. So let's try this, and just didn't end up turning out well. But what I liked about it is in page five twenty seven, there is a there was a two objects that were foreshadowed in the room of requirement two of them there was a certain uh cabinet that was important and also a certain uh tiara that was mentioned that he put on the bust of the uh gargoyle head that is very very important as well so i thought those were like that that foreshadow alone and those two pieces of foreshadow are are crucial to everything that happens later on not just in this book but next book too at the full total end of everything like like harry had something in his hands that he didn't even know and that's really crazy man so i, I did like that part it sucks that like we couldn't get harry but it always seems harry only ever really won the quidditch cup like for his team uh in the, his third year if we think about it right like when oliver wood was still the captain because in book four, there was no Quidditch. Book five, he was banned from Quidditch, even though their team ended up winning. 
Like, remember, like, they had to go with uh, Harry and Hermione had to go with Hagrid into the forest because for that last match, and luckily they ended up winning there. And then this year, Harry can't even participate in the final. So every time, like, they actually play the game to win the cup, Harry never is there except his third year. So officially, Harry's only won one uh, <laughs> world, uh, one exactly. house cup himself. So we're just, just want to toss that out there. But I thought it was interesting, though, that uh, he did finally get the girl, though. She jumped into his arms, a little passionate... Uh, embrace there, and uh, I thought it funny like Dean like had a smash glass in his hand, and Ramilda Vane wanted <laughs> to throw something, and you know Ron's like, "All right, man, do your thing. It's all good." So I thought it was good. It was a great chapter to end on. It was a really great chapter to end on. So uh, I kind of guess that takes us into our our plot holes, yeah. Yeah, I was just gonna say a couple more things on that. Like, yeah, uh, just do your thing. Uh, like you were saying, like the details is why I love this book so much. Like the full circle details that are minor details, or even ones like you know how he mentioned the room requirement with those two little things there. You know, it, it plays so much foreshadowing for the future. And you know, going back to all these books where Hermione has warned Harry over and over and over. And he still can't learn his lesson, and it comes full circle. But honestly, I think the big reason I really like this chapter was because I thought of like uh, the serpents. How do you say it? Serpentcentra. Can you? How do you say that? Secumsempra. 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 So I imagine like Secumsempra. Ha! <laughs> Just blast him back and cut him in two, like Frieza going in four different ways. It just disappears into the abyss. It was like, ha! Ah! Oh, it was like one of those Dragon Ball Z moments. Do you realize you're up against the perfect weapon? Oh, it was great, but man. Dude, Fantastic. The crazy thing um, is. But yeah, no, no. I think in the end, it probably should have been like one of those average chapters. But because of that, like using it out of nowhere, that trunks draw the sword moment. It was badass, but yeah, man, that brings us to plot holes. Um, do you have any plot holes? I just want to, I want to, I want to clarify my thought on that too. I thought because like I want to make sure that people understand how serious this spell was. Snape had to go over him three times with like the counter curse thing. Like it went over like one to stop the bleeding, one to start knitting, and then once more to like really get it like like. So, I mean, obviously Snape knows what it is because I'm not going to say why Snape knows what it is. But, like, you know, it was serious. He had to perform the counter curse three times over his body or else Malfoy might not be here, man. So that's what I'll leave that. That is a very serious spell and uh, Harry done, done fucked up. <laughs> but anyways, to yeah, man. Real quick, just before you say that, I mean, think about it this way. Think of all the times Harry has been in trouble with the crew you know the whole crew daddy the whole golden trio here all the times you've been in trouble out of all the six years when has no matter what it has been with detention when has mcgonagall ever said you should have been expelled like think of all the time like that should tell you right there even to the hearing and all that right like when has a faculty member actually said to him like you should have been expelled? Like of course Snape says it to him all the time. And philosophers and sorcerers stone like or was expelled, but you know they were kids. When has an actual faculty member ever been like Snape? You know you you got lucky there. Snape with the car when they drove it in the second year said they should have been expelled when they when were like the, yeah, the flying car. Right. Snape has it out. <laughs> Snape has had it out for Harry forever. So. 
you know, yeah, but McGonagall. Oh, well, I mean, as far as, like, someone that's not, like, had it, for, <laughs> even with, like, Umbridge, you know, yeah. McGonagall was like, you got to watch your temper and all that. But when has, like, McGonagall ever to, like, the point she's seen, you know, Harry mess up so many times, been like, you know, like, this one could have done it for you. <laughs> like, maybe you should have thought about what you did, but... Yeah, man, I'll let you take it away. So the plot hole that I have, and guys, if you remember from our very, very first episode that we did in the Harry Potter arc, I brought this up in the uh, the plot holes portion of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. But on page 446, where uh, Dumbledore mentions you know, Lord Voldemort wanting the Defense Against the Dark Arts position and how he said you know, it was, that was definitely what he was after because we haven't been able to keep... Uh, uh, Defense Against the Dark, Dark Arts Teacher for longer than a year since I refused to post Lord Voldemort. Well, that's not true, because I remember when I talked to you guys about this before in Sorcerer's Stone, Fred and George were discussing and telling Harry and Ron about how Professor Quirrell was as a teacher, which Fred and George would not have known if they not had had him as a professor before Harry and Ron arrived at Hogwarts the year before, because this is Harry and Ron's first year talking about Sorcerer's Stone. So, clearly, yeah, right. Professor Quirrell had been there longer than just one year because Fred and George were like, yeah, he's kind of like a, like a startled, scared little guy. I don't remember the exact quote. I'll find it and I, you know, if, we, if I need to, but I had it in my old one there. But, yeah, in Sorcerer's Stone, Fred and George uh, mentioned how Professor Quirrell acted as a teacher, meaning they must have had him before, before Ron and, and uh, Harry arrived at Hogwarts, making it impossible for him to only have been there one year. So, that's my plot hole. <laughs> My only question to that would be, which I think that's a really good one, like, was he the defense against the dark arts professor the whole time, though? Like, maybe we don't know. Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> not giving anything away at all, <laughs> but you, you can see where my mind's going. We, we just you, got... You know what? Uh, what I'm going to do... became defense against the dark arts professor. I mean, people do change positions. So maybe he was like something else. But every, then again, everyone Snape else has is, been potions master for yeah. How long, everyone so else has kind of had teach. their position though. Professor Sprout has been the herbology teacher. Trelawney's been the divination teacher. McGonagall said she's been in her post over sixteen years. Remember when uh, what's her face, um, Dolores Umbridge asked McGonagall about her post. So she's been the transfiguration mm -hmm. teacher for sixteen years. Meaning Coral couldn't have taken that post. Like, you know, uh, what's, what's the other one? Charms? Professor Flipwick's been there for, what, 11 years? Something crazy like that. Like, so there's no other position for him to have been in. Like, what other... Right. Other, yeah, like, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, think about it. You I can think, even though, audit this by when, remember, Umbridge was doing her audits, and they were saying how many years they've been there. Yeah. So... And 100%. I think, though, for the for the audience, what I'm going to do, because I think you, you all deserve this, I'm going to go grab the Sorcerer's Stone book right now and find the exact spot where that was so I can actually give the exact quote so that way I'm not just speaking for my health. I know I could go back and point to it in our old episode, but I'm going to go grab this off my shelf real quick and I'm going to go find that little spot and we're going to give it to him. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great idea. Uh, me, personally, I didn't really find any major plot holes or anything i just one thing i really love about this book is it is so detailed and really brings everything in uh full circle and i mean i i just really didn't like i mean it's i you know we go all the way back to like sorcerer's stone and chamber of the secrets and it's easy to find knickknacks here and there but 
I gotta give her credit. Like, there's a few things like you're saying, but overall, I mean, these. I really think it's true. Like, I don't. It's a very good book series. Like, I can't really find any major plot holes to the point I was like, this is ridiculous or anything. Now the movie, that's a whole nother story. I'm sure we'll get to that at <laughs> a few weeks. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, I didn't have any problems with it. So um, did you, were you able to find that book over there? So I, I have the book. I have it in my hand. Now it's all about finding the proper chapter where they said this darn thing. So let me find um, that. That's going to be an interesting one. So, uh, But either way, but what we should do, while I'm looking at this, how about you go over your interesting fact, and then I'll do my interesting fact after I've got time to look through that, and then kind of end it on that. Sounds good, man. It's a plan. So I actually got a treat for you guys today. So you know I'm kind of a big Pottermore history buff, kind of bring it all full circle, and it actually worked out perfect because this was like the one episode I could kind of bring this up on um, for it relating to both things and kind of meet in the middle and everything makes sense without giving anything away. Um, so we've been talking about Horcruxes a lot today. Um, so I'm going to talk about the father of Horcruxes. And uh, what's funny is you actually mentioned it earlier as far as if Chase would give anything away as far as the incantation spell. So, no, I wasn't, because no one knows exactly what the incantation is for it. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, and you can look this up on Pottermore, and I'm actually going to back both of these up with uh, quotes and comments. Um, but the father of Horcruxes, so it's Herpo the Fowl. So he was an ancient Greece wizard, uh, known actually as one of the most darkest wizards of all time. Still not on the level of Voldemort. I think he's on he's on his own level, still always is. I think the top ones um, that are ever talked about throughout history, as far as wizards, are Chrysdis. He's been known as the father of Dementors. He's the one that actually made that island on uh, that Azkaban came from and housed Dementors there. Um, we've even talked about Raxidian, who actually produced a Patronus that wasn't pure of heart, that had maggots eat him. Um, before because he was so bad and he was basically trying to force himself on um, on on the on the maiden that was in the village there um, and then we've even talked about of course Gellert Grindelwald a little bit in the past but I mean overall right uh, Gellert Grindelwald always said for the greater good like as far as not truly evil um, but really just had a, a, a point he was trying to make there. And we've even talked about uh, Merlin's sister before. So, I mean, there, there's so many dark wizards, but he is actually up there as one of the most evil wizards of all time is Herpo the Fowl. And he was born in ancient Greece. Uh, he is actually known as a spell inventor. So it's interesting. We've been talking about Snape and um, all these different uh, professors and you know, wandless magic and people inventing their own spells. Um, but he was experienced most in the field of dark arts. Uh, he is the first known wizard to actually experiment with the breeding of basilisks. Um, and he is the first one to know has openly bred them and it's recorded in public. He is the first known user of horcruxes. 
Um, there is actually only two known wizards to ever use Horcruxes, and that was um, Horthus the Fowl, and it was Voldemort. So there's only ever been two that have used Horcruxes. Um, Horpo the Fowl actually is a descendant of Salazar Slytherin, and he is the ancestor of Voldemort himself. He was known for dark arts, immortality, possel tongue, basculus breeding, and uh, I'm going to back this up with two quotes, and I'm going to tell you exactly what the theory is, which um, this is the theory on Pottermore. But so just to prove that him and Voldemort are the only two to ever use Horcruxes in history, um, it says, from J.K. Rowling, she did put this quote, Wizards would have been looking for ways to exactly do what Voldemort did for years. And some of the ways they would have tried would have killed them. So I would imagine that there would be many parallels here, such as a horcrux splitting atoms and being very good and very bad in the world. I do imagine other people besides Voldemort would have tried, even though they couldn't have accomplished this. I think if there was a name to think of any people trying this for a long time, maybe they would have succeeded, most wouldn't. But in an attempt, there have only been two wizards in history to ever do this. One, the Dark Lord, and two, Horpos the Fowl. And that's on Pottermore. And um, the other one to back up his Baskalis breeding, this is actually from Newt's Commander, and you can find this in the book Fantastic Beast. The first recorded Baskalis was bred by Herpo the Fowl, a Greek dark wizard and possum mouth who discovered after much experimentation that a chicken egg hatched beneath, uh, beneath when produced a gigantic serpent possessed of extraordinary dangerous powers, which going all the way back to Chamber of Secrets, that was Josh's interesting fact on how they bred. Now, the Horcrux that is thought which there's a lot of theory and speculation of, is this really canon? Did she think of this after she wrote the books, or was this the plan? The Horcrux, that is thought, because he only made one that is recorded. Voldemort made many Horcruxes, but there's only been one discovered, according to Pottermore. And according to Pottermore, the Horcrux that is thought to be Horpos the Fowl is the opal necklace that Katie Bell wore. And, uh, yeah, um, were you able to find that by any chance? I sure was. <laughs> nice. I sure and was. Would, yeah, with that, you want to give us your interesting facts and then pull that up in the in the book there? Well, yeah, I'm actually got the book here, so I'll just do this one first. I'll do my plot hole first. So I already mentioned what it was, but here's my evidence on it. It's actually on page 70 uh, all the way through the first paragraph of page 71 in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone says, uh, told you, didn't I? Told you you were famous. Even Professor Quirrell was trembling to meet you. Mind you, he's usually trembling. Is he always that nervous? Oh yeah, poor bloke. Brilliant mind. He was fine while he was studying out of books, but then he took a year off to get some first-hand experience. They say he met some vampires in the Black Forest and there was a nasty bit of trouble with a hag. Never been the same since. Scared of the students. Scared of his own subject. Now where's my umbrella? How are you going to be scared of students and scared of your own subject if you haven't taught it? <laughs> like, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's right, that's so that's sure. it. So there's a little thing there. Yep. So clearly, Professor Quirrell has at least done one other year as a Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, making it up to two. Meaning they were wrong when saying he was not able to hold a Defense Against Art teacher longer than one year in page 446 in Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. So yep. that no, is done there. I'm glad that we were able to kind of put that to to rest. And then my interesting fact: it's a lot less cool than Chase's and a lot shorter. But it's about the unicorn hair that Slughorn and Hagrid were. Remember, they were drunk, and when before Harry got that memory, and you know he was like, "Oh, you can get so much money for that." And Hagrid was like, "Yeah, I use it for X, Y, and Z." Well, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the unicorn hair and what it's all used for. So, unicorn hair is a powerful magical substance with a variety of uses, originating on the body of a unicorn. Clearly, uh, most uh, most notably, it can be used as the core of wands. So in wand lore, uh, the wands with these cores produced the most consistent magic. They were least subject to fluctuations and blockages, and they were the most difficult to turn to the dark arts because unicorns are so pure. So important there. That is cool. And then also, yeah, and then their other known uses is that unicorn tail hairs were also used in potions, though their exact properties were unknown, although the beautification potion was known to contain them. And that was commented on by Harry Potter during a conversation with Ferenzi. And uh, Rubius Hagrid, as we found out in the chapters that we talked about, uses unicorn hairs to bind bandages because they're very strong and very useful for it. So, uh, Unicorn hair is worth 10 galleons for each hair according to Horace Slughorn. Some people say this may be an inaccurate because they were drunk at the time where a wand only cost 7. But at the time, think about it this way. The Sorcerer's Stone was five years ago. With the inflation of prices, it's very possible that the unicorn hair could cost 10 galleons a hair. So uh, that's still unknown up to this date in terms of the exact cost. But just some of the uses for it and a little bit about unicorn hair in its entirety. And that's all I have for my interesting fact today. No, that's awesome, man. That was one of my favorite scenes of the book because that was like... Almost like how we've talked about our old college days, man. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Old Jay Nelly uh, yeah, taught geez. me everything he knows. <laughs> good stuff. Sure. I hope Yeah, not. man. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll let you sign us off here in a minute and close us out. I was just going to say it's, it's just wild how, you know, we got, uh, for those of you all that don't know, um, we actually will have three weeks left. So uh, Jay Nelly, you know, he's he's kind of like the the coach of this bad boy, man. <laughs> yeah, I can, you know, go off the tangents and fly off the handle. So we could be on Half-Blood Prince for a, a year if I wanted to with some of the stuff I come up with. But um, no, nah, he, he keeps us on an awesome schedule. And uh, the way we've decided to do this as a team, you know, it, it's going to be awesome. The next um, correct me if I'm wrong. I want to make sure I get this right. But the next two weeks when we're closing out the book here we're gonna have three chapters for each episode and uh you know and and then we're gonna get into the the fourth quarter after we do our our differences episode (laughs) so but uh man it's you know just the ride is great on this thing and uh, it's so fun um thanks for you guys always you know just been with us on this ride man since when do we start this ride for HP in, in September? October. September? October. October, near Halloween. Yeah. October, okay. Yeah, which is it's a long time. Like, that's a long time. Um, so, yeah, just enjoy the ride. 
Um, and it's going to be awesome because I think, you know, what's awesome, we always have a reason every time we do this, and we're going to be ending right around the 20th anniversary of Harry Potter, just like how we ended Game of Thrones at the first anniversary. And, um, you know, it's always a reason, and it's just a great ride. And uh, with that, I'll, I'll let you uh, close us out, uh, Jay Nelly. For sure, and just to reiterate what Chase was saying about the chapters, I'm going to actually give you guys exactly what chapters we're doing on which week. So next week we'll be covering chapter 25, 26, and 27, and that's it, which will end up being part 5 of Half-Blood Prince. Then the week following will be part 6 of Half-Blood Prince, which will be chapters 28, 29, and 30. So those will be the six chapters there. Then we'll do our part seven of Half-Blood Prince, which will just be the differences episode between the novel and the film. So expect the next two episodes to be a little bit shorter than what you've had to deal with uh, today and last week, which will be great for you guys. But uh, honestly, you've been fantastic with it. So thank you so much for always subscribing, liking, and clicking our links on all of our social sites and leaving reviews and comments and following us on all the places where you can get your podcasts, including Podbean iTunes, iHeartRadio, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, whatever it is, you guys, thank you so much. Whatever way that you choose to tune in, we're very appreciative for it. And So with that, we'll go ahead and uh, leave that here for tonight and see you all next week, guys, because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing off.